step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. On this week's episode, we have three stories that I really think you'll enjoy. Let's dive right in as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm an archaeologist investigating an ancient horror, written by Brian Maycock. We had an hour left on site before the developer moved in. I was crouched over, scraping away the soil around a bone and wishing that I had more time. This bone had lain buried for more than 600 years and rushing the excavation of it could compromise the information it held about the people who lived here then. But there was a problem. At midday, the small team of archaeologists that I was leading had to clear out so the diggers could move in. A new high-end hotel was to be built on this plot of land in East London, and delaying the start of this was not an option. The contract that I had signed to gain permission to dig on the site for 10 days included a clause that the university I worked for would be held liable for any financial losses incurred. I would also likely lose my job at some point down the line, if that happened. I had shaken the corporate devil's hand and there would be a price to pay if things went wrong. In the here and now, the bone was still firmly embedded in the ground, and the postgraduate students who were meant to be finishing safely, packing up the samples we had already removed were clearly panicking, feeling the pressure of the deadline. I could hear their raised voices drifting from the porta cabin that was on our temporary HQ, and I could hear the guttural sound of machinery being started up nearby. The diggers were warming up, and they would use clawed steel to remove the soil and not a small trowel. I took a deep breath and kept scraping. I decided that I would give it another 20 minutes and, successful or not, I would get to my feet try and ignore the inevitable shooting pains in my back and neck from being bent over so long, and go bring some calm and order to those packing up the samples. Nineteen or so minutes later, with a freshly excavated jawbone in my hand, I walked over to the porta cabin. The postgrads were stacking boxes, writing out labels, and calling out reference numbers to each other, all the while being watched over by an interloper. Murdy was the site supervisor for the developers and was not a welcome sight. He had the grizzled face of a man who had spent 30 years facing the worst the British weather could throw at him, and the gut of a man who had spent all his time drinking booze and eating fried food. He saw me and his lip curled up in distaste. Professor, he growled. He made the position that I had worked so hard to attain sound like dirt. You and the youngsters need to get a move on, he continued. I'm sending the diggers in on the dot at 12 and if you're still here. He didn't finish, just held his hands out and shrugged, as if implying people were going to get run over with industrial machinery was all in a day's work. 
I tried to remain professional when I replied. We appreciate the opportunity to spend time on this site of historic interest. It's just a shame it was so short. He took a hand-rolled cigarette, lit it, and blew a noxious cloud in my direction. Deliberately, I reckoned. If it had been up to me, then you would never have even been allowed on the site. But the suits and PR and the management said it was good for the company's image to let you have a dig around. And you've had your dig, so get lost. He narrowed his eyes and pretty much snarled as he said this. There was no point in arguing. I turned away, put the jawbone in a container, labeled it, and then helped the postgrads finish up. We loaded up the university's 20-year-old 4x4 and drove away at 11.59. I did not look in the mirror at the sound of the diggers moving in. Ten days had been a hopelessly inadequate amount of time to examine the site, and so much material would be lost in the construction. I had done what I could, though, saved a sliver of the past for future generations. Back at the university, we carried the samples down to the windowless basement rooms that we used for storage. These premises had not been chosen because they provided the best conditions for old bone, pottery, metal, and cloth, but because archaeology was a long way from being the star department at the university. Biotech and AI were housed in the newest, most spacious buildings. We had been shunted away down here. And after storing the samples from the construction site safely, we left them. They would be studied properly further down the line. Just now, the post-grad students had other work with other deadlines that they needed to be getting on with, and I had an excavation proposal to write and submit. Being an academic in my experience was 25% teaching and supervising students, 25% writing papers for publication, and 50% hustling. Trying to raise the profile of the department and bring money in. One of my friends who I had been an undergraduate with had just landed a presenting role in a new TV series about ancient Rome. That was hitting the jackpot. He had always had charisma and confidence to spare and was disgustingly good looking. So I hadn't come as a complete shock. Try not to feel too jealous and failing miserably, I powered up my laptop. Before I dived into proposal writing, I checked my emails and smiled. A previous proposal that I had submitted had been given funding for its initial phase from a philanthropic organization, and that meant that I had the green light to begin work on a new excavation. Four weeks later, when the admin staff and most of the students were just beginning a 14-day break in between terms, I was struggling along a crowded platform at Houston Station with a rucksack on my back and holding two heavy bags. I was not making friends with anyone, as I kept accidentally colliding with other people heading for their trains. I almost wiped out half a dozen business types who were so engrossed in their phones that they didn't see the hazardous load that was me stumbling their way. Finally, I squeezed my way onto a train, and after fighting to fit my rucksack and bags into luggage racks, I pretty much collapsed into a seat. The train headed north, arriving in Scotland four and a half hours later. I changed at Glasgow to another train that passed through some seriously beautiful countryside. 
The end of the line for this train was a port on the northwest coast where I caught a ferry. It was going dark as the ferry set off, and it wasn't due to dock until 7am the next morning. There were cabins on the ferry, but I had not booked one to try and save money, so I settled into a plastic seat below deck and tried to get comfortable. I was tired out after having the long train journeys and figured that would not be a problem. I would be fast asleep in minutes. I couldn't have been more wrong. I shuffled my backside around, I crossed and uncrossed my arms and legs. I tried leaning back and then lowering my head. Nothing felt relaxing. And I was cold as well. There felt to be a draft coming from somewhere, but I had no idea of the source. I took my coat and sweatshirt off and took out all four of the spare shirts that I had packed, and I layered up before putting my sweatshirt and coat back on. I was still cold. Mumbling unhappily to myself, I paced up and down in front of the seat, trying to generate some heat that way. I passed other passengers who were slumped in their seats, snoring away. I scowled at them jealously, even though I knew they couldn't see me and returned to my seat. A long, miserable night followed and I felt lightheaded and chilled through to the marrow of my bones as I waited to get off the ferry. A dawn mist obscured the land beyond the ferry terminal. Not that it mattered. This was a temporary stop. I knew from my itinerary that I had another two hours on a different ferry before I reached my final destination. There was an hour's wait before the ferry departed. My spirits lifted when I saw that there was a cafe on the terminal. I tried the door before I saw the sign hanging inside it saying, Closed. I put my forehead against the door and I sighed. A pool of condensation spread over the glass. I drew a very unsmiley face in it, and I went back to stand in the cold to wait for the next ferry. There was a small, rusty vessel with nowhere to shelter. I stood on a narrow walkway holding onto a bitingly cold metal rail and was soon feeling nauseous as the ferry was buffeted by the waves. At last my final destination came into view. It was a low, dark outcrop in the grey, restless sea. As we came closer, I could make out a jetty that was presumably the landing spot for the ferry, and beyond that a flat and barren landscape. The ferry rattled to a halt, greeted by the screams of a couple of the largest seagulls that I had ever seen in my life, which were circling up above. The barrier at the front of the ferry was unlocked, and screeched in competition with the seagulls, as its rust-infected hinges moved. Excitement about the work that I was here to undertake pushed my tiredness away as I stepped onto dry land. The first written record about the island that I was now on was from around AD 495, when pilgrims had arrived here and founded a settlement. The settlement flourished at first and it was a monk who was traveling through the islands who wrote about it. I had read a scan of this document, the original of which is held in a museum. He recorded that there were six brothers living in a community in a building that they had constructed themselves. They were not integrated with the people who were native to the island, but were working to become closer and to convert them. It read like his time in the island was a rewarding one, and he returned to the island only six months later with a relic, 
which he had wished to give to the brothers to help them flourish. The gift was never made. When he arrived, he found a scene of horror. The bodies of his brothers were scattered around the building that they had built so lovingly. The corpses had been desecrated. Their flesh had been torn away in places and their faces were fixed in expressions of terror. Much later in his life, the monk wrote how he was haunted each day by this memory and how his own faith had been shaken by the experience. Back then on the island, he set about giving the brothers a proper burial. As he toiled to break open the hard ground, there was no sign of the islanders, no offers of help. He finished his task and then left, never to return. There were many in the archaeological community who had dismissed the monk's writings over the years as exaggerated at best and at worst fictional. But his account had always fascinated me, and I was here to try and uncover the truth, gruesome or otherwise. And because of the budgetary restrictions, I would be doing the initial work myself. I would excavate small sample sections of the site where the brothers had lived and died. Then I would take my findings back to the university and build a case for a fully staffed three-month excavation to take place in the next few years. First things first, though, I needed to get to my accommodation on the island. I had considered camping, but carrying a tent and all the supplies would have been too much, so I had booked a room in the island's only hotel. They did not have a website, and I had to make the booking over a very poor and very crackly landline. I took out my phone to click on the link to the map that I had bookmarked, which showed me the way to the hotel. And I sighed. I had no signal. Welcome to the middle of nowhere. I muttered to myself and set off walking along the narrow road leading away from the ferry terminal. Hopefully this would lead to the hotel. As I trudged along, the sky darkened with rain clouds. The road, which was pitted and unmarked, did not seem to be heading anywhere and there were no sign points and still no signal on my phone. I increased my pace as the first raindrops began to strike. Twenty or so minutes or so later, I saw a cluster of buildings in the distance. On the plus side, it seemed that I had been walking in the right direction. On the downside, I was soaked to the skin from the rain. As if the fates were mocking me just as I was about to reach somewhere to shelter, the storm abated and a rainbow appeared. Feeling far too downtrodden to appreciate its beauty, I squelched on. The buildings were what passed for the island's only town. They lined either side of a narrow road. Most looked to be homes. I could see smoke from coal fires rising from chimneys and caught glimpses of people inside at kitchen sinks and sitting in armchairs as I walked along the road. There was a general store as well, which also housed the post office. There wasn't a pub that I could see. If there had been, I would have gone in and ordered a drink. It was far too early in the day really for alcohol, but I needed to pick me up. At the end of the road, there is a small church with a graveyard, and opposite of this, the hotel. Some hotels boast rooms with sea views. My residence for the next two weeks offered views of crooked headstones. As long as I'd had a comfy bed, the water in the shower is hot and they've got the internet, I could draw the curtains and ignore the neighbors. I told myself and I went in. 
The reception area was dark and dusty. There was no sign of any staff. There was a printed sign in the reception desk saying, If nobody's here, please ring this number, followed by a landline, which I would have done if my phone had been working. I let go of my bags and lowered my rucksack to the floor. A puddle of rainwater had already begun to form around me in my luggage. Hello, I called out. I've got a booking. Somewhere above me, a door banged and I could hear footsteps. I assumed that I had woken the owners rather than the dead, and a moment later, a middle-aged man appeared behind the reception desk. He had a sallow skin and thinning hair and told me that he was the hotel manager. He found my details by turning the pages in a book and after making a new entry, gave me a key. It was the largest key that I had ever seen in my life and had a plastic disc attached to it with my room number on it. During check-in at the last hotel that I had stayed in, I was told not to put my keycard next to my phone because sometimes it would mess up the keycard. That was in Oxford. Out here in the islands, technology wouldn't be an issue. At the Oxford Hotel, I was also informed at check-in that the bar served until 11pm. Still holding the key because it was too big to fit in any of my pockets, I asked the manager if the hotel had a bar. He gave me a stern look as he replied, This is a dry island. There's no alcohol anywhere here. I managed a weak smile as I told him, No problem at all. If you could just tell me what the Wi-Fi password is, then I'll head up to my room. He shook his head. There's no Wi-Fi here, son. There's no call for it. I looked at him with my mouth hanging open and then realized that he was being serious. I didn't ask any more questions and I set off to find my room. It was at the end of a hallway illuminated by a single light bulb hanging from a frayed-looking cord in the ceiling. The oversized key turned the lock with a loud click, and the door opened after I gave it a rattle. The light switch just inside the door didn't work and neither did the lamp on the bedside table. That was probably for the best. I could see by the daylight filtering weakly through the window that the room was grim. The carpet was a shade of lime green and the walls painted light brown, and the curtain and the bed covers were a sickly pink. Grimacing, I carried my luggage over to a wardrobe that looked as if it had been put together by somebody who really hated wardrobes, and then noticed that I had walked mud all over the carpet. In my opinion, it was impossible to make the lime green carpet look any worse, but I had been brought up to respect other people's property, so, using a tissue that I had in my pocket, I tried wiping up the mud. All I managed to do, though, was spread it around. Should not have done that, I thought, but decided that the mess would have to wait. I was tired. I decided to have a few hours of sleep and then head along to the site and do a reconnaissance before dusk. Even though I was far away from London and its thousands of faceless threats, I automatically locked the door and left the oversized key in the lock. I closed the curtains, shuffled in my socks over to the bed, and pulled the bed covers back. A musty smell drifted out. Ignoring it, I took some of my clothes off and then gave up. I didn't even have the energy to get undressed properly. 
I climbed into bed and yanked the covers up to my neck and closed my eyes. At last, I thought. Only there was something pressing into my back between my shoulder blades. A bed spring. I rolled over onto my side to get the spring out of my back. The bed creaked loudly and I sank into a gap in the mattress where there wasn't any support. I didn't move again. I laid there hating the entire world. Somehow I fell asleep or I passed out, whichever it was. When I opened my eyes, darkness showed around the edges of the curtains. I cursed. I had slept through what was left of the day. A shower might help, I thought, and I went through to the in-suite bathroom. I pulled the light cord and a bulb in the ceiling flickered into nauseatingly bright light. The toilet looked like it should have been condemned, and there were cracks in the sink around which small black flies circled. At least the shower appeared clean. I stripped off, stepped inside, and turned the controls. No water appeared. There was a rattling sound from the pipes and then the shower spat out a lump of brownish liquid. I moved quickly enough not to get any of it on me. Any idea of washing abandoned, I layered up with clothes again, sat on the bed and waited for dawn to put me out of my misery. When first light crept into the room, I went downstairs to complain and asked to be moved to another room. The smell that rose to meet me gave me a whole new perspective on the hotel. The aroma of bacon frying hit me. My stomach started to growl and my mouth watered. I took the last few stairs, two at a time as I hurried towards the smell. There was a door off the reception area and I could see a single place had been set at one of the half dozen small tables. The hotel manager came into the room carrying a plate with a full cooked Scottish breakfast and put it down next to a teapot and toast in a rack. He wished me good morning and left me to devour the food. My cholesterol levels raised and my spirits soothed. I sat back and sipped a second cup of tea dosed with two spoonfuls of white sugar. I decided to insist on a new room later in the day. I did not want any more delays to getting started with my work on site. The equipment that I would need for the first day crammed into my rucksack I set off with close to a spring in my stop. I had enough old school tech including a compass and a paper map to manage without connecting to the internet and it took me under an hour to reach the site of the settlement. I had seen the ruins of old crofts on the way and scrawny sheep but no other people and standing catching my breath as I looked out over the desolate land. I was amazed at how driven the brothers must have been to make their home here. There were no remnants of any buildings visible on the surface, but I was optimistic that I would find remains of the lives that lived here, and violently lost here, if that aspect of history was true. I started laying out a grid using strings and pegs, again old school 101. The pegs were metal and actually made for use with tents, but I had found that they were ideal for this. I drove them in using a claw hammer. I made sure they were in nice and deep and would need to use the claw to pull them out later. As usual, I packed too many pegs, so I put them back in my rucksack along with the hammer to make sure that I didn't lose it. 
Once the grid was secured, I drew a map in which each peg had a numbered coordinate. Then I chose four sections where I would carry out my excavations and added these to the map. I worked quickly, carried along by the natural enthusiasm that I still felt for my chosen profession. It felt so good as well to be freed from the shackles of academia. The paperwork and the pressures were left far behind out here. Even time relaxed its grip, and it wasn't until I noticed that the weak sun was falling towards the horizon that I realized it was time to head back. Arriving at the hotel, I went straight to reception to ask about moving rooms and what time they served dinner. I wasn't that surprised not to find anybody at reception, and shouting didn't help this time. So I decided to head up on the first floor where I had heard movement previously. The door of the stairs was marked private, but there was no lock on it. I knocked, knocked again, and there was no reply. Feeling exasperated, I opened the door and entered a dimly lit hallway. Hello? I called out, but quietly. There was a strange air about the place. I was met with silence, so I continued along the hallway and through an open doorway. The room that I found myself in was shrouded in half-light, and I could make out a woman sitting in a high-backed chair near a shuttered window. She looked frail and her attention seemed to be fixed on a small picture in a frame that she was holding. I tried to speak to let her know that I was there, but my throat was suddenly so dry that I couldn't get a word out. I moved forward, meaning to apologize somehow for disturbing her, but really, my room was not acceptable and I needed to eat. That was what I wanted to let her know. As I came closer, she didn't stir. It was as if she was held by the sight of whatever was in the picture. I took another step, another and then, over her shoulder I saw what held her. It was a photograph of a man, a woman, and a boy, a teenager on the cusp of adulthood. The man I recognized, it was the hotel manager, but he looked much younger in the picture, and healthier, and there was a big smile on his face as he draped his arm over the woman's shoulder. The woman looked happy as well. Her long dark hair was loose over her shoulders and her smile was in her eyes. They glistened for the camera. The boy was clearly their son but took more after his mother. Like the man, she had changed over the years. Her hair was white and tangled and the nails on the hand that held the picture were bitten to the quick. I was still staring transfixed, trying to understand, when I heard a voice behind me. What do you think you're doing? The hotel manager's face was flushed dark red with anger as he spoke. You need to get out of here now. Mortified, I held my hands up. I'm so sorry, I replied. I just wanted to ask about my room and dinner, but I couldn't find you. I didn't mean to intrude. We can talk downstairs, he told me. I nodded to show my agreement and then turned back to the woman in the chair, wanting to apologize to her, but... Her gaze was still fixed on the photograph. It was as if I wasn't even there. Feeling confused and embarrassed, I headed back downstairs to reception, followed by the man. He exhaled deeply, ran a hand through his thinning hair, and then said in a quiet voice, My wife, she's been like this since our son. He began to choke up. I said the only thing that I could think of. 
I'm so sorry. He wiped away a tear before going on. Thank you. Things have been so hard and I admit I've let the business go to ruin. And you're the first guest that we've had this year. The only thing that I do seem to get right these days is the cooking. Speaking of which, I can make you some homemade soup with bread and butter for your dinner. A traditional local broth packed with vegetables. I hope that will do. My tension eased. I smiled and said, That would be great. The soup was as good as it had sounded. Reception was once again deserted when I had finished eating, and I decided that I could put up with the state of the room for one more night. I dragged myself up the stairs and along the hallway lit by its single bulb, went into my room, locked the door on autopilot, and lay on top of the bed fully clothed. I was utterly spent and fell asleep the moment that my eyes closed. The feeling rested but grimy as I had not washed for days now. I went downstairs and was delighted to be greeted by the smells of another traditional local breakfast. The hotel manager brought it to the table. He looked even more jaded than before though. As he put the plate down, he said in a hoarse voice, You were seen heading to the site of the old settlement yesterday. I had no idea who could have seen me, but on a small island such as this, news clearly traveled fast. Before I could say anything, he went on. My wife thinks that you're intruding, that our island's past is our business and no concern of outsiders. She wants you to leave. I must admit that that got to me. Look, I don't want to be rude, but I'm a professional archaeologist carrying out a perfectly valid investigation. And I paid in advance for my accommodation here and my travel back to civilization. So unless you want to cough off a full refund plus the cost of the new ferry and train tickets, you're stuck with me, buddy. Outburst over, I took a moment to breathe. He looked hurt and I felt bad. Especially the jibe about civilization. Look, I said, I'm sorry for what I said, but seriously, I'm here to do a job and I'm not breaking any laws, so... I left it hanging so that he could explain any objections further, but he simply shook his head and walked out of the dining room. I ate the breakfast because I needed the fuel for the day ahead, but I didn't enjoy a single bite. The walk out to the site was dull, but as I neared, the enthusiasm that I felt for my work began to filter through and I started to feel better. In a few weeks' time, I'd be back in London, back at the university, with findings to write up and present. And if and when a large-scale excavation was given the funding green light, we would all be camping and fully self-sufficient. I'd make sure of that. Daydreaming of a brighter future, I made it to the site and my good mood disappeared. The grid that I had laid out so carefully the day before had been torn up. String and pegs lay scattered across the ground. I would have to start again. I swore out loud. This couldn't have happened accidentally. It was deliberate vandalism. But who would have done such a thing? I clenched my fists as the only possible answer presented itself. It was the person or persons from the town who had seen me coming here the day before. And after sharing the news, they must have returned overnight and destroyed my work. It was intolerable. 
I was muttering obscenities under my breath and trying to gather the strength to start again when I realized that I was not alone. There was somebody standing in the distance watching me. I had no idea who they were apart from the jerk responsible for this. Hey, you, I screamed at them. You think it's funny? I'll come over there and kick your backside. See if that wipes the smile off your face. I walked towards them, my blood boiling. But before I could get even close to them, they turned and began to move away. I shouted out a few more insults and then took a deep breath and went back to start again. I was not going to be defeated by small-minded, small-town losers. Long, tiring hours later with the damage repaired and the first sample excavation begun, I headed back to town as the light faded on another day. I wasn't sure of what would be waiting for me at the hotel, so I decided to call in at the general store to stock up on snacks, as long as it hadn't closed for the day. It was a relief to see as I approached it that the lights were on and the open sign was still displayed in the door. I didn't want to tramp dirt all over the place, so I stopped outside to check my boots were not too muddy. They would do, I figured, and I looked up. There was somebody standing on the other side of the door looking at me. It wasn't a friendly look. They flipped the sign to closed and pulled a blind down. I heard the sound of a key being turned in the lock. What the? I exclaimed. I hammered on the door. Excuse me, I want to buy some stuff, I yelled. The only response that I got was the lights in the store being turned off. Infuriated, I walked over to the window and held up a middle finger. You idiots, I grumbled. It seemed the hotel manager's wife and the vandal were not the only people who had taken against my presence on the island because I was looking into their past. I began walking back along the road towards the hotel and I felt eyes on me. I glanced to my left. There was a woman in her kitchen looking out of her window at me. Her mouth was set tight. I held her gaze for a moment and then walked on another few steps and glanced to my right. A man and woman were looking out at me from their house. Their expressions were laced with hostility. I glanced to my left. Another couple were staring at me from inside their house, their faces cold. I tried to hold my head up high as I kept walking, but I could tell that the occupants of every single house in the village were watching me, and I could feel their anger. The hotel was close. I wanted to increase my pace, but I wasn't going to show them that they had me scared. I wasn't going to give them that victory. The church was coming up on my left now, and there was somebody leaving the graveyard. An old man. He was stooped over with age and his gnarled hands each grabbed a wooden walking stick. He looked up at me. His eyes narrowed and his mouth opened in a toothless sneer. And then he spat. A dark globule that landed on the ground near my feet. Disgusted, I turned away and walked towards the hotel door. I paused on the threshold. Anger flared inside of me. I span around and yelled back down the street. You really should get the internet. Give you something better to do in the evenings than being a bunch of freaks. It wasn't much, but it felt better than doing nothing. I entered the hotel and was actually relieved to see the reception desk was deserted. I had had enough and all I wanted to do was go to bed and sleep. 
I locked the door to my room, left the key in, and then fell onto the bed and closed my eyes. And I slept. Until a noise found its way into my troubled dreams. I opened my eyes and saw only darkness. And I heard the floor creaking in the hallway outside my door. I was still the only guest as far as I knew, and I couldn't think why the hotel manager would be walking past in the middle of the night, or his wife, which only left one of the townsfolk, perhaps the distant figure who had vandalized my work, or one of the men and women who had glared at me, had they come to do me harm. I climbed out of bed and moved over to the door as quietly as I could and double-checked that it was locked. Yes, I was safe. There was no creaking sound now and I began to wonder if I had imagined it. This was an old building. They creaked and groaned in the wind all the time. I shook my head and smiled to myself. I was being stupid. There was no one in the hallway who was out to get me. The townspeople's weird behavior had got to me, that was all. Feeling stupid, I headed back to bed, but paused, because I had heard another creak, and another. There was somebody out there. I stood and listened. Whoever it was was walking up and down the hallway outside of the door. I didn't know what to do. Part of me wanted to go over to the door and lock it, storm out into the hallway and tell them to shut up. What if this person out there became violent though? They might have been drinking, and drinking makes people do extreme things. I put my head in my hands and I tried to think and still they paced, the wood beneath their feet creaking. Please go away, I mouthed silently. Please. Another part of me wanted to crawl into bed, pull the covers over my head and lie there in the darkness until they left, like a child would. I looked up. This was insane. I needed to get a grip. I steeled myself. I moved back towards the door. I was going to keep the door locked and tell them to get lost. Tell them that they're a loser. That they were not frightening me. Which was a lie. I rested my forehead against the door got ready to speak loud enough to be heard clearly. Clearly and calmly. So that they understood that I was an adult man in control and the creaking stopped. There was a moment of silence of relief, of the hope that they had gone, but then something scraped along the other side of the door, something sharp and hard. It progressed slowly downwards. The sound made my skin crawl, but it was finished. The silence had returned. For a second or two before the scraping had started back up, the torturous sound had multiplied now. Numerous sharp somethings were being dragged along the wooden surface of the door, scraping inch by inch. I crossed my arms over my chest, squeezed them against my body as the scraping continued. I can't say how long it went on for and when it did find the end, I spent an age not moving waiting for it to start up again. The sound had gotten into my head, left me ragged at my wit's end. Eventually, I moved away from the door and sat on the edge of the bed. I was done. As soon as it went light, I was going to pack my bags and leave the hotel. I wouldn't say anything to the hotel manager, I would just go. I remembered from planning my itinerary that there was a ferry due to call at the island early that morning. 
I would abandon my work and catch it, and forget about this whole place. I'd be in serious trouble with the funders of the trip, and my bosses at the university, but I would have to deal with them later. I would think of something. The only thing that mattered now was getting away. As I sat waiting, I could feel my heart beating. I was lightheaded and nauseous. A gust rattled the windows and I jumped. My heart raced. I hugged myself tighter and rocked back and forth. I thought about leaving there and then, forget about first light, but the chance that I would get lost in the dark was far too great. I had to wait it out. And when the first traces of light appeared at the edges of the curtains, I was so relieved that I could have wept. I stood up, pulled back the curtains to make the room lighter, and began to sort myself out as quickly as I could. I decided to only take one bag so I wasn't loaded down, and I emptied the rucksack and both bags onto the floor, and then grabbed what I thought were the essentials. My passport, useless until then my phone, laptop, and their chargers, some random clothes and cards, and I stuffed them into my bag. And then I laced my boots with clumsy, shaking fingers, pulled my coat on, and carried my bag over to the door. I took a couple of deep breaths to try and calm myself. All I needed to do was unlock the door, walk down the stairs and out of the hotel, and then just keep on going. It was so simple, but it felt like the hardest thing that I ever had to do. I reached out for the key and turned it. The click of the lock seemed so loud that it made me flinch. I listened to check in for any sounds outside, but the hallway appeared to be empty. I opened the door and stepped out of the room. I felt a moment's giddiness as I did. I would have lost my mind if I had stayed there in a moment longer I knew. I closed my eyes, took another deep breath, composing myself. I was going to be fine. I opened my eyes. The single light bulb glowed, illuminating the bones scattered across the hallway floor. Its light showed the pale skeletal remains of an animal, a sheep from its skull. Some bones had been snapped and some were mutilated by teeth marks. I had dug up enough bones, animal and human, to not be a stranger to these sights. But to have them here left outside my room by the nightmare visitor was grotesque. What kind of sick mind was at play here? I couldn't think anymore, I couldn't bear it. I hurried down the hallway towards the top of the stairs, where I was met by a new hideous sight. Scrawled on the wall were the words, No escape. The letters were crudely formed and had run. I stared at them in mounting horror. Bio rose into the back of my mouth as I realized that they had been written in blood. Cold fear flooded my body. I stared in horror at this message which had surely been left for me. And then in a blind panic I began to run down the stairs, missing my footings almost tumbling once a second time. I was gasping for breath. Sweat ran down my face, making my eyes sting. I stumbled on past the door marked private and on down towards the way out, down the final flight where there was someone sitting at the bottom of the stairs. A dark form hunched over, blocking the way. The words, no escape, no escape, raced through my mind. The figure down there a dozen stairs away had their back to me. 
I could see their shoulders moving, they were breathing deeply, and now I could hear the harsh rasp of each breath, and breaths which got louder as the figure began to rise. They moved slowly, stiffly, and when they were standing, they turned. I saw their face, and a scream began to form inside me. The figure blocking my escape was a man distorted. His cheeks were sunken, his eyes dark pits. His skin was scarred and filthy, his hair long and dank. His clothes were rags hanging off him and torn in places revealing emaciated limbs, and a torso where his skin clung tightly over his sharply protruding ribs. His hands were held at his sides and each finger was tipped by a long curling, dirt-darkened nail. The remembered sound of scraping against a door crept into my consciousness and a shiver ran down my spine, almost as if he could sense my torment. His mouth twisted into a smile. His exposed teeth were like broken shards of glass. A growl drifted out from between them, the low menacing snarl of a predator. And then this man, this feral being, began to climb the stairs towards me, growling, smiling, a shattered smile and now clacking together his fingernails in a steady and sickening beat. One step, two steps, three. I was held by fear. I could only watch and count. Five. Six. In moments, he would be close enough to reach out to me with his twisting fingernails and scrape them down my skin. Seven. No, I couldn't let him get to me. I tore myself free from the paralysis and began to stumble back up the stairs. I tripped, fought my way back up to my feet. I glanced back. His mouth was moving as if he was trying to say something, but I could see his tongue was nothing but a stump. It could be that he had bitten it off himself, I thought. One clumsy chomp with those teeth and it would be gone. A hysterical laugh bubbled out of my lips, and then I yelled, Get away from me, and I threw my bag at him. He didn't even bother raising an arm to swat it away, and the bag rolled harmlessly off of him. I struggled on up the steps, back the way that I had come. My chest was burning with the exertion and my legs felt like they were going to give way at any moment, but I couldn't stop. I couldn't let him catch me, bite me, rip open my flesh with his sharp teeth. I lost my footing again and banged my knee hard. Pain flared as I was limping badly and I reached the floor where my room was. I did not look back as I passed the message written in blood that said, no escape, and ran towards the bones. I scrambled past them and into the room and slammed the door closed. I needed to lock it. I reached for the key, but it had fallen out and out of the floor. I fell to my knees to grab it, but before I could, the handle turned and the door began to move. I jumped up and threw all my weight against the door to close it again, but he was stronger. The door was flung open and there was not a thing that I could do about it. He was there, framed in the doorway, a creature in a waking nightmare. He stepped into the room, moving slowly, looking me in the eye. Spittle bubbled in his mouth and his lips parted as he tried to speak again. And this time I heard him growl. You outsider, you die. He shuffled forwards, placed one foul, nail-tipped hand on my shoulder and with the other he cupped my face. His fetid breath was hot against my skin as he whispered hoarsely. 
Now scream for me. His jaw opened. Saliva clung in lines between his jagged and broken teeth. All I could do was hope that it would be quick. But I knew that it wouldn't be. I knew in my guts that he would draw this out. He was not a wild animal that kills to survive. I swear that he was enjoying my fear, and soon he would enjoy my pain. Unless... Through the corner of my eye, I saw the claw hammer that I used to drive pegs into the ground lying on the bed after I had tipped the contents of my rucksack out. I had one chance. Adrenaline flooding my body, I brought my knee up into his abdomen, freeing myself as he gasped and let go. I flung myself towards the bed, grabbed the hammer, turned and swung it at him with all my strength. The claws cut deep into the flesh of one of his eyes. He staggered backwards, clutching his wounded eye. I raised the hammer high and then struck again. His legs gave way and he toppled backwards. He laid unmoving on the floor. I could feel his blood warm on my face, see it on my hands and on the hammer. I dropped it in disgust, grabbed a t-shirt and frantically began trying to wipe the blood off my face. The t-shirt was soon stained through and I was looking for something else to use when I noticed the hotel manager was standing in the doorway. He came slowly into the room and looked down at the body. His voice, when he spoke, was heavy with emotion. The families on the island are intertwined and a curse runs through our veins. It's been this way since the earliest days, and over the years there have been aberrations. The brothers encountered one such monster long ago, and you, another today, my son, the monster he became. Tears ran down his face as he went on. He was a troubled child, but we thought it was going to be okay. We could manage. And then, when he reached adolescence, he began to change, emotionally and physically. The curse grew inside of him, and he spiraled into savagery. I wanted to keep him locked away, but my wife could not let go. My mind was reeling. This man's son might have been a monster, but I was not. I managed to say, he tried to kill me, it was self-defense. He wiped at the tears with a sleeve and replied, I know, and you should leave now while you still can, before they realize what has happened. The people of the town, our ancestors have kept this dark secret closed for so long and they would kill you to cover up the truth. But I can't bear it anymore. There has been too much suffering. Saying this, he knelt down next to the body of his son and held his hand. I choked back my own tears and stumbled out of the room. When I emerged from the hotel, it was a clear, cold morning. Smoke was rising from some of the chimneys of the houses lighting the street, and I could see light behind drawn curtains. The townsfolk were still waking up and it would be a little while before they knew what had happened. I had time to make it safely to the ferry. The curtains were drawn back in one of the houses that I passed. A young woman was standing in her kitchen preparing breakfast. She paused, supported her lower back with one hand, rested her other hand on her swollen belly. It was a scene which could have been playing out in any small town anywhere in the world. A pregnant woman taking a moment before going on with the simple tasks of the day. But on this island in this town, there was a latent darkness which ran through the veins of all who lived here. 
I silently wished her and her unborn child well, hoping with all my heart that the horror of the curse would not manifest itself, and then I hurried on towards the coast to make my escape from this terrifying place. Never tried to break a bad habit and felt like you're climbing Everest in flip-flops. Yeah, we've been there too. But here's a breath of fresh air. Fume. It's not about giving up, it's about switching up. Fume takes your habit and simply makes it better, healthier, and a whole lot more enjoyable. Fume is an innovative, award-winning, flavored air device that does just that. Instead of vapor, Fume uses flavored air. Instead of electronics, fume is completely natural, and instead of harmful chemicals, fume uses delicious flavors. Now I'm sure you're probably wondering about the taste, and the first time I tried it, I actually really enjoyed it. It's a lot more flavorful than you would think, and it feels very fresh. And also, the device while holding it in your hand, it has movable parts that are designed for fidgeting. It gives your fingers a lot to do which is helpful for de-stressing and anxiety while breaking your habit. Start the year off right with The Good Habit by going to tryfume.com slash and getting the journey pack today. Fume is giving listeners of the show 10% off when they use my code MRCREEPS to help make starting the good habit that much easier. NASA sent us to a collapsing universe and it's God saw us. Written by Dominic Eagle. In my tireless pursuit of answers, I found fresh questions of terror. Comfort is an alien notion to me. I've always been afraid, always failing to still my brain's ever worrying cogs. But from a young age, I aim to cease my mind's endless worrying. I poured every ounce of my energy into becoming an engineer. It has always eased my nerves to fix things. Of course, nothing was ever enough. I needed absolute certainty. And I wasn't going to find that on our little green rock. Naturally, I looked to the stars. In the early 2000s, shortly after graduating from Cambridge University, I moved to America and secured a job at NASA. I wanted to be a part of something bigger than me, an organization focused on exploring the deepest crevices of the universe. The date was January 2nd, 2023. It was a day unlike any other. The office was filled with the excitable chatter of my colleagues, folk who typically would have their heads silently buried in their paperwork. The air on this particular day, however, was filled with a jittery, magnetic energy. Connor, you'll never guess what just leaked, Adam eagerly said, motioning for me to follow. I shrugged and followed my friend out of the office. What's happening? I said. You're going to lose your mind, my colleague replied. We made our way into one of the compound's main facilities a building which housed NASA's assembly line of rockets. I had a hunch that Adam's exciting news might be related to DM-50, the dozen minus rocket. After all, the bulky vessel was nearing completion. 
No low-level employees had been given any inkling as to what purpose these spacecraft would serve. My colleague and I rounded the corner of the vessel, and we found Dr. Stanley Jacobs talking to a few physicists. He was a graying, pale-faced fellow with chap skin, the sort of man who had physically aged beyond his years. He could have been 64 or 46. The weary-faced man groaned at the sight of Adam, but my friend didn't care. He was fixated on the screen behind the physicist. It depicted various graphs and charts, a foreign language to me. Everybody's been biting Stanley's ear off after he mistakenly forwarded an email to Jenny in accounting. Last year, Jacobs discovered an anomaly at the edge of our galaxy. Adam gleefully whispered, An unidentified phenomenon that vaguely resembles a black hole, though its physical makeup is unlike anything previously discovered in human history. And NASA has been intercepting frequencies from the other side, using telescopic data, They've created musical tones which sound like, well, who knows? Storms on unseen planets. Forms of alien communication. A parallel version of our reality, perhaps. This sounds like fiction. Why didn't we hear about this when Jacobs found the anomaly a year ago? I asked. My colleague shrugged. You know what the media is like. This could be huge or it could be nothing. But Jacobs is suggesting that it might be a tear between universes. Hypothetically, I scoffed, though secretly, my interest was piqued. Oh, come on, Connor, you're always talking about the mysteries of the universe. Well, it turns out that there's more than one universe, Adam said. And Frank heard that they're planning an expedition with the DM-50. I told you something big was happening. Why else would they have contacted Dozen Minus? It's unofficial, highly classified technology. My heartbeat started to quicken as I contemplated what my friend had said. Parallel universes, I thought. Could these distant worlds offer the answers that I have always wanted? The small group of physicists eventually dispersed and Adam nodded his head at Stanley. Talk to him about the expedition. He didn't want anything to do with me but this could be your shot to see space. My friend whispered before walking away. May I help? Dr. Jacobs asked, overhearing us. I, does the DM-50 expedition have any openings for engineers? I asked. The man sighed. You shouldn't know about that, but you're not the first person to ask. This day has been... You're going to explore the anomaly, aren't you? I asked, eagerly interrupting the physicist. Did you hear something? Wait, are you even an engineer? You're not some government servant on a mission to shut down this project, are you? Dr. Jacobs asked, lifting an eyebrow. No, I just need to be on that ship, sir. You likely already have plenty of engineers attached to the project, but... We do, so I wouldn't get your hopes up. The man interjected, packing his briefcase. I won't pretend to be some indispensable genius, I said. But this is more than a job to me. I don't really care about NASA. I just, I've always wanted answers to, well, 
everything. The men carefully examined me. What's your name? Dr. Jacobs asked, pulling a piece of paper out of his coat pocket. Connor Bridges, I said, composing myself. The physicist nodded and scribbled my name. There aren't any official openings, Connor, but I know that look in your eyes. It's what guided me to this place, too. It's what prompted me to chase Harriet's eye. Harriet's eye, I asked. The man solemnly nodded. The name of the anomaly, my late daughter. Sorry, I quietly replied. Jacobs cleared his throat. The DM-50 could always use an extra engineer. My eyes glistened and I immediately accepted the offer. I couldn't quite wrap my brain around the idea of going to space. Now, of course, months after my voyage of terror, I try to pretend that it never happened. After ten months of training, launch day arrived. Dr. Stanley Jacobs and Dr. Elizabeth Farrow, his research partner, had been developing the logistics of the mission for the better part of two years. Our stealth vessel, the DM-50, would venture to the edge of the Milky Way, undetected by the people of Earth, and we would send various automated research vessels into Harriet's eye. And given promising results, a manned mission would follow. It was an airtight plan. The launch was a surreal experience. Sitting in a near-silent ship equipped with cloaking technology, we left Earth behind. Not a soul on the ground watched. It was a week-long journey. Using dozen-minus technology, we achieved the impossible. We not only traveled to the farthest reach of the Milky Way, but we did so within an unthinkably fast time frame. The reason for Dr. Jacobs' hurry would eventually become horribly clear. From the windows of DM-50, the crew surveyed Harriet's eye with doe-eyed, blissfully unaware faces. A gaggle of schoolchildren dazzled by the mysteries of space. As we approached, the eye grew from a blackened blemish on the horizon into a ginormous wound that had splintered the very fabric of reality. A hauntingly spectacular sight. The unmanned vessels were launched once we had reached a suitably near yet safe distance from Harriet's eye. We watched as the tiny metallic blobs jettisoned from DM-50. And then one by one, the three vessels were swallowed by the blackened mouth. As we found ourselves hovering in space, at the edge of oblivion, waiting for the robotic explorers to return. The majority of low-level workers had nothing to do but twiddle their thumbs. We couldn't proceed until the data from the unmanned vessels had been retrieved and analyzed. Not quite the adventure you imagined, Mr. Bridges. Stanley Jacobs asked, grinning. The two lead physicists sat on the opposite side of the canteen table. I smiled at the pair of them, while hurriedly finishing my mouthful of food. It wasn't often that lowly crew members would have the opportunity to talk to the ever-elusive lead physicist. Actually, it's no different from a day in the office. Sitting around and waiting for something to do, I said. Miss Stanley laughed. Well, it's just as tedious for Elizabeth and me. Uh, too right, 
but I enjoy lunch breaks because I get to spend some time with people other than ham. Dr. Elizabeth Farrells chirped. I hate to pry, but... Well, have you made any progress? I asked. I won't pretend to understand the physics of this expedition, but... Oh, don't be so modest, Connor, Elizabeth said. You're an engineer. I'm sure you understand more than you pretend to know. He's a mysterious egg, Jacobs chuckled. Did you know that he twisted my arm to get on this mission? He was almost as determined as me. Almost. Elizabeth raised an inquisitive eyebrow. Yes, I do seem to remember him showing up quite late in the training. Were you keen to see action, Connor? The woman had kind eyes. Elizabeth was middle-aged, possibly the same age as Stanley. But the years had been kinder to her soft-skinned, rosy-cheeked face. She reminded me of my late mother. Something about her velvety voice encouraged me to open up. It wasn't about the adventure, Dr. Farrow. I've just... I've always been afraid, I said. I've always wanted answers to unanswerable questions. And this phenomenon seems so fundamentally juxtaposed to the reality which surrounds it. Before either of the physicists could reply, our food tray slid to the right, as did we and everybody cried in confusion as their bodies were limply flung to the side of the unexpectedly leaning vessel. My temple connected with the edge of the table drawing blood, and I gripped either side of the canteen bench until my knuckles were white. Dozens of dazed and injured workers clamored to their feet. We all hurried to our respective stations ready to assess the damage. Though the ship had corrected its balance, it continued to quake uncontrollably. And as we ran to the engineering office, my crew members and I shuddered at the sight of complete blackness beyond DM-50's windows. The stars and planets had disappeared. Brace for impact, a voice shrieked over the ship's intercom. The ship's outer body groaned under the strain of seismic pressure and I tumbled to the office's metallic floor. The other engineers and I clutched in any fixed things that we could find, and we braced for our lives as DM-50 finally came to a blunt and jarring halt. Everybody lay as still as possible. Murmurs of pain echoed around the office. Light fixtures flicked unstably, and various alarms sounded in a calamitous cacophony. All personnel report to the main bridge. A voice announced over the tannoy. My fellow wounded engineers stumbled weakly to the corridor outside our office, but we did not walk to the main bridge. We speechlessly filled the corridor and each of us stared out of the windows which lined the walkway. Beyond DM-50 there lay a near colorless hellscape. The only light stemmed from a luminous blue orb in the distance. A white dwarf, one woman said, gasping. Do they usually look like that? A man asked. The edges of the orb seemed to dance erratically, and the ocean beyond our ship was littered with tidal waves of crumbling rocks. Stray pieces clattered against the windows of DM-50, and then I realized that one of the larger distant rocks was a planet. It appeared to be cleanly split down the middle, as if it were two halves of a cracked coconut shell. 
This foreign place was not the Milky Way. The very laws of physics seemed to contradict our reality. We entered Harriet's eye, a man whispered. It's another universe, somebody muttered. All personnel to the main bridge. The Tanoi voice repeated urgently. Snapping out of the existential fever which had seized our bodies, the engineering crew hurried through the walkways of the ship, and we joined everybody in the main bridge area. Beyond the chattering crowd, I could see Dr. Jacobs and Dr. Farrell standing sheepishly behind Captain Bolton. Quiet, the captain bellowed. The entire crew immediately complied. We tried to fixate on our bearded, stern-faced leader, but our eyes kept wandering to the swirling kaleidoscope of colors and bombardment of rocks beyond the bridge's main viewport. An unidentifiable force has pulled us into the anomaly, Captain Poulton said. We're working towards immediately returning home, and we do not know what we might find here. The data has not yet been retrieved from the unmanned vessels, so these are uncharted waters. Anxious murmuring resumed. Enough, the captain shouted. Before we attempt to enter the anomaly again, we must deem that DM-50 is in ship shape. I'll leave that to our engineers, but time is of the essence. Isn't that right, Dr. Jacobs? There was a disquieting tension between the lead physicists and the captain. Dr. Jacobs cleared his throat. The anomaly is shrinking. We should have told you that we have a limited window in which to explore what lies beyond it. That's not all, Captain Poulton growled. Stanley cleared his throat nervously, but Elizabeth placed a delicate hand on his shoulder. We have entered a dying universe, one that is collapsing in on itself, she said, prompting a gasp of horror from the crowd. The anomaly is our only exit and it will soon close for good. Dr. Jacob sighed. I believe that Harriet's eye might well be more than a rip in the lining of reality. It might be the crunch point for this universe. All matter in this reality will collide here. Anarchy ensued. Crew members hurled abuse at the physicists, and a few furious individuals lunged at Jacob's. The captain and several security officers restrained the enraged crew members. We can't change what has been done, Captain Poulton yelled, shoving the mob backwards. When we return to Earth, Dr. Jacobs and Dr. Farrell will stand trial for their crimes. Until then, we have one objective. Save every last person aboard this ship. The crew worked tirelessly over the following hours, but things only worsened. We were sitting ducks at the entrance to the anomaly, the ever-closing seal between two universes. That became apparent as the ship's body began to wail painfully. The onslaught of rocks loudened against the metalwork and reinforced glass panes. DM-50 began to quake on a near-constant basis, and whenever I would glance out of the ship's windows, I became acutely aware of a burgeoning light in the distance. The sinister, swirling glow of a trillion galaxies converging. The incoming flurry of long-dead planets and moons. The universe was collapsing, and we were at the epicenter. 
I eventually slumped into my bunk bed at the brink of exhaustion, but I found myself unable to shut my eyes. Eager to busy myself, I switched on my terminal to run a few final diagnostics for the evening. The sooner that we could give the captain the green light to go, the better. I was surprised to find a notification in my inbox. Hey Connor, I've been bored out of my mind and I'm still upset that Dr. Jacobs wouldn't let me join the crew. So I decided to do some research on the big man. I talked to Frank in IT because he owed me a favor and he let me look at some of the transmissions that Jacobs has been deciphering. NASA received the signals from the anomaly that seemed communicative, Connor, and it was a two-way flow. Jacobs responded. He talked to something. You need to ask him about that. The thought of receiving a message from alien life, whether in our universe or another, had once filled me with such excitement. But I was now filled with inexplicable dread by the idea of Jacobs communicating with some unseen intelligence. It could have been the secrecy surrounding the communication. Jacobs hadn't told anyone that he had already found something sentient beyond Harriet's eye. Why? My gut instinct was to confront him. I slid out of bed, got dressed, and left the engineering quarters. The ship was eerily quiet on my walk to the main laboratory, other than the roar of space debris which had become a form of white noise. As expected, I found Dr. Jacobs hunched over his desk and busying himself with work. The white glow of the screen illuminated the man's gaunt, possessed face. He hardly looked human. Why didn't you tell us? I asked. The expedition would never have been greenlit. Dr. Jacobs muttered without looking up. Good, I said. We never would have faced such horror. Dr. Jacobs removed his glasses and eyed me with disappointment. What happened to that young man who wanted answers? We're not going to get any answers here, I said. Certainly not about that thing you heard in the darkness. Stanley Jacobs froze eyeing me for a few seconds as droplets of sweat collected on his furrowed brow. How do you know about that? He whispered. He only spoke to me. I shivered. He? Stanley's frown lifted as he realized that I knew nothing. Go to bed, Mr. Bridges, he said, returning his gaze to the laptop. What were you hoping to find? I asked. The man scoffed. Another universe, Connor. Something greater than us. And I calculated that we had no more than a couple of years before Harriet's eye would seal forever. A couple of. I stopped mid-sentence. How long do we have before this reality collapses, Jacobs? Months, weeks. Days, Stanley whispered. Fist clenching on their own accord, I stormed across the lab and towered over the man who quickly shrank into his desk chair. What could we possibly learn in days, Stanley? You brought us out here to die, I barked. I wanted this to happen sooner, he retorted. But the airheads at NASA had to plan carefully. Unofficial projects are always messy. Yeah, especially when they result in countless deaths, I said. The anomaly almost tore the ship in half. We might not even be able to fix it. We might die, don't you care? 
I have every faith in you, Dr. Jacobs said, returning his gaze to the numbers on his screen. And I had every faith in you, I replied. You're lucky to even be here, the physicist snarled. As we continued the back and forth discussion, our voices gradually raised. It was only after 10 minutes of running in circles that we realized that we were competing not with each other, but with the growing sound outside of the ship. And when we turned our heads to the laboratory windows, Stanley and I gasped in unison. The dying universe's void was filling with light at an increasingly rapid pace, and DM-50's trembling foundations felt less stable with every passing second. No, this isn't right. We should have time. Stanley breathlessly cried. I still have so much data to collect. I need to. All personnel to stations. A voice announced over the intercom. Flight to Harriet's Eye will commence in five minutes. Brace for impact. We've barely run 50% of the necessary diagnostics, I said. Who cares about the ship, Connor? Dr. Jacobs maniacally cried. This is greater than anything in human history. This is... What, what are you? The wispy, disembodied voice rattled sharply around my skull, like a coin stuck in a jar. It's me. I'm here, Stanley whispered. I did as you asked. The physicist noticed my horrified expression and he realized that I had heard the voice too. He wasn't as special as he thought himself to be. I became aware of the fact that all sound outside the ship had ceased. The terrifying convergence of galaxies continued beyond the window, but there was quiet. Only that haunting whisper permeated the silence. A new, a new land, land to conquer, the voice hissed. Thank, Thank you for showing, showing me the door. door. I want to see her, Dr. Jacobs wailed, throwing his arms outwards. You said that I would see Harriet. She, she is in the, in the place, place of all, of all dead, dead things. things. Come, Come closer, closer let, let me show, show you. The chilling voice said, Outside the window amidst the multicolored glare of approaching galaxies, I saw two forming bodies, red gassy spheres of biblical proportions. And as black specks emerged in their centers, I realized what they were. Eyes of unfathomable enormity. I tried to scream, but my quivering, narrowing throat was unwilling. Could it have been strangled, perhaps, by the paranormal deity? Black tendrils emerged from the abyss of the universe's ever-nearing edge. They curled forwards and took the shape of colossal godlike fingers, fingers that were reaching towards us. The ship suddenly lurched forwards. The captain, who had looked upon the horror in the depths of space, commenced our voyage into Harriet's eye. Thankful for the slightest hope, I looked to the sobbing physicist beside me. Harriet, he cried. You... You promised. With a thunderous clap, the tremendous ear-shattering sound of the collapsing universe is returned, as if the terrifying entity with eyes like blazing gateways to hell were roaring in fury at our attempted escape. Those ever-stretching fingers soared towards our spacecraft, and DM-50 began to jolt from side to side. A trillion swirling lights soared towards our ship, 
as the universe's collapse quickened. I screamed as I finally fathomed the horror of being crushed by a universe. But then the pulling began, the pull of the shriveled, near-closed anomaly. Blackness began to envelop our ship. We were entering Harriet's eye. As Stanley and I steadied ourselves against a nearby desk, I closed my eyes and thought of home, the little green rock that I had shunned my entire life. In that moment, it was the only thing that I wanted. Following an explosion of sound, everything stopped. All sound, all movement. And when I opened my eyes, we were surrounded by life. We had returned to our universe. There were bright, burning stars in the distance, fully formed planets, serene tides of space that gladly carried us home. A long and quiet journey home. I rushed to the laboratory window to eye the fading anomaly. Did it close or simply fade from view? I still don't know. Part of me believes in the darkened distance of space. I might have seen those terrible black tendrils slinking through the terror between realities. The hand of a god fleeing its dying universe to claim another. Dr. Jacobs and Dr. Farrell await trial for what they did. I've been denied visitation privileges, but I need to see him. I need to understand the last thing that he said to me. It lives. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Relationships can often be very difficult to navigate. For my significant other and I, communication is key. And understanding that just because things aren't always easy doesn't mean that it's wrong. The best relationships come from both people being willing to put in the time to make things work. A therapy can be a place to work through the challenges that you face in all of your relationships, whether with friends, at work, your significant other, or anyone. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself and it lets you take the time to self-reflect and truly understand what you're feeling. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MrCreeps today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MrCreeps. My neighbor has been acting weird lately. I never should have found out why. Written by Lucas Worley. I lived across the street from Harold for more than a decade. It's amazing what you see about people when you catch swaths of their life in passing. It was never that I intended to watch him or anything like that. This was a merely a matter of living near him. I was there when they had the movers, when they renovated their house, and when they became just Harold. It was a dark morning with a thick moisture in the air that served to let everybody know of the approaching storm. I was fighting off a cold of epic proportions, chewing lemon cough drops like candies, and drinking cup after cup of peppermint tea. 
The mixture of these flavors tasted awful, but at least I could taste something. It wasn't very often that I would call out of work like that, so I guess it was purely dumb luck that made it so I saw him across the street. Even being sick, I tried downing a few slices of toast just so that I would have something on my stomach. This made it so I ended up reading Reddit on my phone while nibbling on the edge of a piece of burnt toast. There was Harold, rushing across his lawn with his robe hanging open to expose his white briefs, dead-eyed with his scruff growing around his throat. He bent down to lift the newspaper at the end of his driveway and shook it from the plastic bag that had collected the morning's moisture. After thumbing through it, some fit overtook him and he began ripping the paper till it all fluttered away in the wind, catching along sidewalk crags or bush branches like flags signaling his surrender. I felt for the man honestly. I had seen the whole thing when Patricia stomped across the lawn over there and peeled out of the driveway. We all liked her. Most people that brought sweets to welcome people to the neighborhood could be overbearing with their niceties, but she had a way with it that made everybody comfortable. I could only imagine the misery that Harold was living with. Rumors said that it was an ongoing thing as it tends to be, a culmination of symptoms till they had to be exercised from each other. And people tried getting Harold to come out to functions, but he said no a lot after she left. The poor fellow was taking it exceptionally hard. I watched him as he moved back to his front door and slammed it shut behind him. By the time I had given up on the toast, Harold poked his head back out of the door and peered around to make sure that nobody was watching him. The coast was clear, or so he thought, because I could see him well enough. He went chasing after these strands of paper that he had left behind, this time taking precautions to tie his robe shut. I remember thinking then how weird a grief that must be to lose someone like that. It makes you do weird stuff. As for me, I've enjoyed my own company too much to muddy the waters with anything beyond platonic. Once he had collected most of them, he trotted out of sight once more, and giving me enough time to look at a few more wholesome memes and to finish my cup of tea. Finally, at some point that I had not even seen because I had become so engrossed in my scrolling, Harold was in his yard between the two maples, angled against a spade with effort. Even from a distance, I could see that the morning sprinkle was making quick work of his bed hair, so it conformed to the shape of his skull. My brain took minutes to realize what he was doing, but as the pile of wet earth beside him grew, it registered. But why? What was he thinking? Was he planting something? I watched him like that for at least an hour, sipping through two cups of tea. He was in the hole, halfway up to his shins in caked in mud. As I polished off the last cup, I moved to grab my umbrella and I stepped outside. Harold didn't even look up at me as I stood in front of him. He was a man possessed. Groans escaped him each time he drove the spade into the ground. But as his loafer-covered foot came down on the foothold, and his arms pried to jimmy the dirt loose so that he could toss it to the side, he let out a satisfied grunt. Standing there on the sidewalk just on the other side of his hedge, with the rain coming down light, I looked on. Whether or not he noticed me, he didn't make it known. Hey there, buddy. What are you doing there? 
How are you, neighbor Eno? He asked me without even looking up from his work. It came from him like a jaunty, self-aware joke. Um, another shovelful met the pile. Do you need me to call someone? He laughed and continued shoveling. For a minute, it seemed like he wasn't going to respond to my question. Clay. I jumped at the sound of my own name coming from his mouth. You're a nice guy, he spat and wiped his forehead, leaning against the handle of the spade. At least he had stopped digging, if nothing else. His eyes were lucid like he had never before been alive, and it was only now that it found him. Or maybe he was just crazy. I used to make these little ships. You've seen them before, right? Whenever Patty threw her parties, I would show them off. I'm sure I've shown you before, haven't I? They were in the bottles. He put out his hands to demonstrate the size of the bottles. I nodded. You see, making those little ships is a real pain. For me, the hardest part was always raising the mast. I hated building those things, but that's what I was supposed to do right. Does that make sense? He gestured to the house behind him. I got really shaky hands, so putting those tiny pieces in just the right places always drove me straight up the wall. You understand? It was rough. But whenever I would finish one, I would carefully take it to wherever Patty was in the house and show it to her. She loved those things. They were cute, she would say, or some variant thereof. It's cliche, but it was happiness too, and that's what I always wanted. This. Again, another manic gesture to the house. It was the American dream they tell you about before your balls drop, kiddo. Do this, get this degree, buy this house, marry this lady because she'll make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And then poof, one day it's all gone and you know what you have to do then. I shook my head. The early autumn air was giving me chills. Or maybe Harold was. You gotta smash those bottles. You have to, you know, because it makes you feel something. You throw them across the room and watch them explode. So many hours. He shook his head and laughed. I'll tell you, man, those things were a lot more fun that way. It felt good and bad at the same time. Cathartic, I said. I guess, man, whatever you want to call it. But that's what you gotta do sometimes. He looked at the hole that he was standing in and then at the yard as a whole. White picket fence, yeah, right. But Harold... Yeah? You don't have a fence. He cut his eyes at me, but slowly a smirk started to slice across the lower half of his face until it evolved into a hearty chuckle. Thanks, I needed that. Sometimes you just gotta dig a hole, I asked. Harold snapped his finger. You're right. I can't explain exactly what it was that jumped into me at that moment. Looking back on it, it's the most indescribable sensation. I looked back to my house across the street beneath my umbrella in the dreary rain and even in the cool weather. I could feel fire in the pit of my stomach. Perhaps he had infected me with the madness. But I would rather state my case as this. Sometimes you've got to dig a hole because that's what feels right. Splashing through puddles as I ran through the rain toward the shed of my backyard, I found my old worn-out shovel and it was rusted from years of disuse. I bolted toward Harold's forgetting my umbrella. I must do have lost my mind, running around in the rain with a cold to go and dig a hole with my neighbor. 
When I say it out loud, it sounds insane. But when you're in the moment, things are different. I jumped into the small hole that he had created and began chipping away at the edges and loosening the dirt so that we would have a wider area for us to both comfortably dig. He said nothing to me as I joined. My tired, cold-riddled body ached with each passing moment, but then something else had joined it. I've heard people talk about getting a runner's high from pushing beyond your limit, and that seems as good as an explanation as any other. The light rain gave way to a sunny midday lull as each shovel push felt less like the last, and more like we were doing something important. It could have been a few hours or only minutes before I looked up to examine my surroundings. Regardless, when I did look up from the ground, we had cleared out enough dirt so that we were standing in the hole up to our waist. Harold continued his digging, but I took a moment to catch my breath and when I did, I heard a familiar voice. Clay, what are you two doing? I looked up, standing in nearly the same spot as I had been earlier that morning. There was Rogers and Margaret. Rogers was a man in his mid-thirties who wore sweaters everywhere and walked his dog around the neighborhood to crap on other people's lawns. In fact, in his right hand was a leash drawn taut as the little mutt most likely watered on Harold's hedges, hidden in the leaves. Margaret, on the other hand, was an elderly runner. In her bright, sick green and purple sweats, she hardly got any workout if you ask me. I think she went around the neighborhood hoping to catch her dish out the latest gossip. I grinned at the two of them. And you know how it is, sometimes you gotta dig. You're more than welcome to join us if you would like. And they looked at one another then back at me. This time Margaret spoke. What are you digging for? Digging for? I thought the question over for a moment. We're not looking for anything if that's what you mean, Harold. I turned to look at my compatriot for support. Tell them what you were telling me earlier. Harold barely looked up as he heaved another hunk of moist dirt out of the hole. It's all bogus. You work for things. You want to be loved and to love in return and that's where you mess up because you should have been doing that to yourself the whole time and not searching for it in someone else. And then he sighed and looked up while leaning against his shovel handle. What I'm trying to say is there's no reason to dig, but focusing on the task at hand sure does let my mind wander. Who needs therapy? It's expensive and you could have just been digging all along, digging for the truth. It might look like dirt and roots to you, but to me, this is where I'm figuring my stuff out. As the two of them listened to him, I could see the light in their eyes return. And it felt once more like they were humans with a spark of initiative and not plain, boring suburbanites. Rogers swiped his hair back in contemplation, totally messing up the perfect widow's peak that he had developed. He lifted his dog and ran down the sidewalk, screaming over his shoulder, I'll be right back. I watched him go for a moment and then shifted my attention to Margaret, but she too was gone. When the two of them returned, I wasn't surprised. What did surprise me, however, is that while Roger showed up with a shovel on his shoulder like a rifle, Margaret came jogging back with a wheelbarrow full of tools, shovels, axes, and pickaxes. Among the things she brought was a gas-powered auger, and I must admit that it did surprise me quite a bit. 
There was a feverish tinge in her face, one that said that she meant business. I swear when Harold heard the auger fire up, he grinned from ear to ear. It was contagious. It felt like the deeper that we got, we were compelled by an external force of some kind. Whispers from just around the corners of our faces. Everybody began talking about it. Our team of four quickly grew into ten, and then twenty, and then thirty by the time that people were getting off of work and they drove by. Babysitters were called for those that had children. When asked for how long they would be gone, they did not give an answer, and they doubled the pay. Terry, Roger's husband, showed up to the hole, trying to urge him to drop this craziness, but it wasn't long until he found himself in the hole, digging along with the rest of us. We hacked the maples to pieces in the yard and moved those pieces into the street. By the time that it was getting too dark to dig, Linus, a single dad, hauled over his grill and started cooking hamburgers and hot dogs for the tired diggers. It got to the point that when I was standing in the hole, the top was nearly 15 feet over my head. Its diameter was at least 25 feet. We lounged, dirt covered but smiling and joking and talking about the weather, as we ate and cracked open a few beers. If not for the massive hole in Harold's front yard, it may have just been a regular cookout. Gathering together string lights on poles and tiki torches, we brought the yard alive and set up plastic sunbathing chairs to bed down for the night. What was the plan for that? I would say that it's obvious. All of us had the intention of continuing the project the following morning. I caught sight of Harold near the sidewalk, peering down into the hole. He sipped from a beer bottle and a little satisfied smile played out across his face. On approach, he greeted me with a simple nod. It sure is something, isn't it? I said. That it is. Can't believe we made it this far. How long do you think it'll take until we can't go anymore? He said. I glanced at the gathered crowd, falling asleep in plastic chairs or chatting amongst themselves in groups of three or four at a time. I've heard people joking that they won't stop until we hit China. That's the sort of stuff that only kids talk about. And I think it's magical that full-grown people can play pretend like that. There was a pause as I too stared into the pit, admiring it in all its glory. We've done a good thing here, haven't we? Certainly. Harold took a quick swig of his beer. This is crazy, he laughed. He had a tired look in his eye and I could sympathize with him. You should get some rest. He checked the watch on his wrist. If we hope to make an impact tomorrow, we should start early. I put up two fingers and give him a lazy, jokey salute. Good night. Night. Never before in my life have I slept like I did that night. It wasn't just the tiredness or my cold either if I were to guess. In black dreams I heard what can only be described as electric bubbles in my ears. The screeching in the night filled me and hollowed me out the same as we did that pit. It was a nightmare. I should say that much, but it was so much more than that. The best way that I could put it is that it felt as though my soul even if I had never been one to believe in such a thing before, was leaving my body and I was a nothing person, less than human for that. And then the screeching in my dreams woke me and I realized that I was not hearing the sounds of dreams, 
but the sounds of screams. I propelled myself off the chair and staggered around, bleary-eyed. It was still nighttime or early morning. What's happening? I tried screaming. My neighbors were running towards the pit and there was already a crowd of them gathered at its edge. I followed, slapping my face awake. As I came to the edge of the hole among the others, I froze. There was a place at the opposite end of the pit where the dirt floor had given out to some unknowable chamber. From it sprang forth whipping, glistening tendrils, bright red and thin as paperclip wire. Each one writhed independently from the others, but it must have come together on the end of some great and unseen beast in the dirt. Several of them held Rogers well over our heads as I looked down with extraordinary horror at what I was seeing. The tendrils cracked like whips against his body, sending out shrill, curdling screams. They shed him of his clothes and then began stripping him of his skin as well. My eye shot to Terry. He looked down entirely helpless at what was happening. I could see the frozen tears in his eyes, not quite accepting what was in front of his face, all of our faces. I saw it and I can tell you still that I have dreams of it, or sometimes I try to tell myself that it was all some fever mirage of my cold, but I know that that's not true. It's impossible to retract. Rogers, more red running muscles and exposed bone than anything else, hardly looked like a human anymore. The tendrils lifted him even higher and twisted his body like a rag, and then dropped him dead before recoiling into their subterranean lair. The hole in the pit that went deeper, the place that it had spawned from, echoed a gurgle to signify that the chamber was large, exceptionally large. And Terry screamed finally, taking towards one of the ladders protruding from the hole. Margaret tried reaching for him, but he was too fast. In moments, he was in the pit, on his knees before his husband. I couldn't bear to watch him cry over Rogers like that, and I tried scanning the area for Harold, but he was gone. Instead, my eyes fell on the flaps of skin that caught along the crags in the sidewalk, and the debris that we had created in our endeavor to dig our way to freaking China. They flapped like flags in the wind, and I couldn't help it. I stepped from the hole and keeled over throwing up the hot dogs that I'd had earlier. A few people joined me. By the time that I had wiped the muck from around my mouth and looked back up, Terry was already at the ladder again, at the bottom of the pit and screaming at somebody, anybody to help him as he carried Roger's body in tow. He was covered in his husband's blood. One of the corpse's legs moved across the ground like a piece of bald lint on the end of a string. And then I heard the noise from my dreams. It was maddening. It seemed to be coming from inside my own head, like a musical popping. It sent a shiver down my spine. At some point, the tears began to flow as I looked onto the crowd of gathered faces and I could tell that they had heard it too. And we all knew what that meant. We marched towards the ladders, pressed around the edges of the hole, our feet no longer our own each of us with a tool in our hands. Terry dropped the body and began walking towards the place the dirt had opened up, just as we all did. We were going in totally transfixed. I remember looking at the faces that came along and I could not help but notice that Harold was not among them. I wondered briefly if he had had the sense to run away when he had had the chance. 
As we filed into the chamber one by one, the slanted dirt of the cave-in made for arduous moving, and must have taken us down another hundred feet at least. Finally, our feet met solid stone. In the distance, there is a city of spires and ancient stone with firelight snapping intermittently. There was no logical reasoning for its existence. Seeing that place from even as far away as we did, I felt a sense of dread. I was sick, I was tired, and I was shaking from the existential horror before us. The city in the distance beneath the impossibly high ceiling of the cavern called us nearer. Among my neighbors, there were whispers of the most unfathomable possibilities. As we moved along, carrying tiki torches and pickaxes, wet shelping sounds came from overhead, and as we peered over our own heads to see what creature it was coming from, the ropey red tendrils of the thing that had killed Rogers dangled from the flat ceiling. The ropey limbs of the thing hung from its bulbous and fat body. It seemed to be breathing, but otherwise it did not move. As Margaret removed a flashlight from her person and shone her light around, it became obvious that the ceiling was covered in those monstrosities, spaced out from one another by about 20 yards. Jesus Christ, said Linus. I can't believe this has been under our feet this whole time. I don't think this was under our feet, I said. Hearing it aloud like that, it made too much sense. You would have thought that we would have heard these eldritch horrors knocking around before then. I don't think this place was here before. What are you talking about? Linus cut his eyes at me, the fire from his tiki torch illuminating his face. He was scared and I could see it. I just mean, I think we did this. Margaret interjected. Look. Our eyes followed where she pointed, and I felt a shiver run up my spine. Up the way through boulders and sharp debris, we caught sight of watchers patrolling the edge of the city, twig spider legs that bowed out with each step from atop round seats, with spotlights scanning the area. The detail of them from so far away in the dark was blurred, but I can promise you that they look like monstrosities ripped from a Bexinki painting. What are those? Even as I spoke the words, I knew that no living human could have looked up on them before because every aspect of their anatomy seemed to defy all understanding. Seeing them made me so uneasy that I reached out for one of my neighbors in the dark so that I might have anyone to hold on to. What are they? I repeated. Let go of me. Daryl, a devout member of the neighborhood watch, slapped my hand away. I offered him a weak smile. I'm sorry, I've just never seen anything like it. None of us have. It's phantasmagorical, I said, totally awestruck. And Daryl and Margaret both looked at me funny and responded by simply peering ahead at the watchers. We walked and as we did, I began to feel the cold that I had been suffering from prior begin to take hold over me. My nose began to run and my muscles ached and I sniffled. I believe that working in the rain the previous day had done little to improve my situation. No one mentioned it, but I kept glancing overhead at the stringy things dangling from the ceiling, wondering if they could hear the noises that I was making. 
My mind continuously went back to the way that they had utterly destroyed Rogers, and I couldn't help but shudder to think what they might do to me. How much longer until you think we reach them? Asked Linus. No one answered him. The echo of the infinite seeming chamber was the only thing. It seemed that we went for perhaps hours, slipping or tumbling across the bent moist rocks that the floor became as we neared the city of spires. All the while those unnameable beasts overhead never left our visage. The whimpers escaped the crowd when we passed by one, edging around the limbs while giving them a wide berth. One of the red tendrils curled on itself, sending a shrill cry from Linus. The thing took little notice of us and we hurried along. The outline of the city ahead became even more clear. It feels like we've been walking forever, I said. Whether this was due to the fact that I was more tuckered out than the others or it was that we had trotted over the rough terrain for a vast, immeasurable time, I couldn't tell. We met a great rock face that stabbed towards the ceiling. It seemed our best bet at finding a place to rest and I mentioned it in passing. With grumbles over how we should continue moving dispersed and we sat with our backs to the flat surface of the rock. The others too began to express discontent with our journey. We never should have come here, hushed Margaret. Darrow scanned the surroundings from a position atop a waist-high boulder. I can't remember where the exit is. I don't think we can go back. The exit doesn't exist anymore. The anxiety in his voice crept up my spine. It was true. Why had none of us thought to leave behind guide points for the journey back? Or was it that we had collectively accepted our fate and subconsciously decided that none of us were going to leave anyway? I sat against the rock among a few half-familiar faces. That's not possible, said Margaret. She moved to the rock that he was standing on, reaching up a hand. He hoisted her bony frame up, her gray hair catching around her face. As she swiped it back, she pivoted in all directions. There's the city. If we've come in a straight line, it should be somewhere over there. She pointed an inconsequential finger towards the dark shadows. Right? Daryl shook his head. Why have we come here? The teary madness was evident in his tone, but I was too tired to look up for my seated position against the big rock. I stared at the ground and wished that I had something to blow my nose into. The others began setting up a makeshift camp, positioning torches and stone cracks and lion-out jackets to sit on. When I finally did look up, I could see that Margaret and Daryl had moved from their position on the rock and took up among the others. The ceiling, alien and starless with those monsters, made me uneasy. I spent my time conning the people in our camp. Twenty-eight scared faces. Each of them looked warily over their shoulders at every small noise. Margaret moved from person to person and when she came to me to ask if I was feeling alright, I shrugged it off. She left me and continued roaming the camp with her hands on her hips, scanning further vicinities. Margaret pulled a hairband from her wrist and pulled her hair back into a ponytail. For a long moment, I was surprised at just how agile and full of energy the old bird was. 
Perhaps those daily walks through the neighborhood were paying off for her. I wish that I had felt the same in that moment. After glancing around to make sure that nobody was watching me, I quickly took the long sleeve of my shirt and blew my nose into it. A few people looked my way but quickly went back to whatever conversations they were having. I was so tired. Rubbing my temples, I rose to my feet and moved to the same rock that Margaret and Daryl had been standing on. After shifting myself slowly up, I began looking around. Near the city, perhaps a mile away, were the watchers with the spotlights. I could just make out the vague shadowy figures riding atop them, and I briefly wondered whether they would be able to see me if they were to shine their lights in my direction. I rubbed my eyes. They felt tender to the touch and I could scarcely keep them open. How I wished for the warm comfort of my bed in those hours. How I wished I had never checked on Harold. It would have been better for me, better for everyone if I had only left him alone. The urge to leave that place was ever-growing and ruminating in murmurs. Some of the group wanted to inspect the city, still transfixed by its spell, while others wanted to leave. It seemed the half that wished to carry forward had it in their heads that the only way out was through. Margaret was one of the more vocal about deserting whatever horrors lurked in that place, and I was right by her. Darrow and Linus both were vehemently defending that we continue. Once everybody's rested up, we should head on, said Linus. It's just like Harold said. There's some truth to be found here. What was all that digging for if not this? Daryl, with his arms crossed, nodded alongside Linus. I shook my head. There's no reason for it. We've been duped, guys. Harold didn't know what he was talking about. He was only grieving. There was no reason for us to jump in and start digging, too. What were we even doing it for? I mean, this was true. I couldn't even remember why I had decided to help dig in the first place. It all felt so pointless. Now that's Bupkis, said Linus, and you know it just as well as I do. It's a general discontent with the state of affairs that has brought us here and I only intend to resurface once I've found the purpose that I've been looking for all my life. There's a magic to this place and it exists for a reason. It would have been nice if that were true, but looking around at the deep shadows of the massive cavern, I could only see desolation. Margaret cut in. I don't care what you do, I'm going back. She studied the group. Those of you that want to leave can come with me or not. The mixed expressions of hopelessness and fear made me sick. It seemed that we were destined to split up in half of us going on and half of us going back. I only hoped in that moment that we would actually be able to find our way out of the cavern. Just as it seemed that Linus was going to respond... The first fish fell from the cavernous ceiling. It was some cod. Upon seeing it there, I blinked to make sure that I had not merely conjured it from my imagination. It came from seemingly nowhere at all, but as it landed on the flat ground in the center of us, it flopped and its mouth sucked and puckered at nothing as it reversed round. I reached a timid foot forward to nudge it with my shoe as Margaret peered up at the ceiling. As the words, where did that come from, came from my mouth. Another fish fell directly onto Margaret's upturned face. 
She shrieked and kicked the thing away. Within minutes, wet plods surrounded us as it began to rain down a waterfall torrent of ocean fish. A flounder bounced off my shoulder, slapping me with its tail. We took up with our arms over our heads to cover ourselves from the incoming barrage of sea animals. It was the most insane thing that I had seen in my entire life. The air smelled of salt and the pattering of the fish landing on the ground is a noise that I won't soon forget. The screams of my fellow humans echoed all around, barely above the sounds of the fish storm. We began to take cover near the great flat rock. I dove across people and wriggling fish to reach it, pushing and shoving and getting shoved in return. In panic, my shoulder met the rock and I turned to look back at my neighbors, frantically searching for shelter. In the uproar, I could see that Daryl was fighting with something clinging to his face as it wrapped its snaky limbs around his throat. I attempted to wrench the thing off, but it only pulled itself more tightly around him. It was far too long for my brain to realize what I was seeing. The thing holding itself to Daryl was an octopus, with a head roughly the size of a Doberman. No one came to his aid and he quickly fell to his knees, the last few screeching breaths leaving his lungs. I watched on in concentrated frozen terror through the last few still-lit flickering torchlights as Daryl's right hand came up in an arched claw to dig into the thing's chewy flesh. And then Daryl went still altogether. Margaret launched towards the thing, totally ignoring the falling fish, arcing an axe as she might have a baseball bat, and swatted the octopus off of Daryl's prone head. Snapping out of it, I sped forward, grabbing a hold of Daryl's wrist, and dragging him to the relative safety of the big rock as Margaret stood guard. He did not kick or scream, and I wished that he were only unconscious. As Margaret returned to the shelter of the rock, we went to shine a light on Daryl. His face was no longer a face, but a skull with open optic holes through which only pink brain could be seen. I recoiled. That's not normal, said Margaret, shaking her head and kicking the rock face as she planted a flat hand against it. Looking back now, I think to myself what a strange thing that is to say. But in dire circumstances, the thing that needs to be said is so far from one's grasp that it too becomes fleeting, illusory, and there is nothing save the obvious and concrete. No, it was not normal. What are we going to do? My voice was small and caught in my throat. I was surprised that anyone could hear me over the sound of the fish rain. The line is dead. And we moved to the city where it's safe. There's no going back now, it wants us here. Even with the mad twinkle in his eye, I could nearly hear the fear in his voice. What exactly it was and why it wanted us here, I couldn't say. And we stayed pressed to the rock till the fish stopped falling. By the time they did, we were nearly up to our knees in them. Their dead eyes looked up at us and sometimes their tails would twitch, forcing me to double take to make sure that there was not another tentacled creature among them. As we pushed on, stepping over or around the dying and dead fish, we came to a flat and open area of ground that encompassed the city of spires. It seemed it had been intentionally worn down. With every step, I felt that we were more vulnerable. 
A spotlight from one of those horrid watchers passed over us as we marched. I could nearly feel the heat off it. We froze and the watcher ignored us, pivoting the light in another direction. I wondered if it could even sense our presence at all. My legs began to feel heavy and my arms too, but this wasn't the normal sort of tiredness that I had been experiencing up until that point. It felt as though that I had been drugged. Looking around at my neighbors as we went, I could sense a dazing in them as well. I watched as their limbs moved in slow motion, and it occurred to me that we were hardly making any leeway whatsoever. Does anybody else feel tired? I asked. Yeah. I twisted my head around to see that it was Linus. Now that you mention it, I am feeling really tired. It's like I want to lie down and sleep. God, I've never felt like this before. It felt like someone was trying to pull my eyelids closed with pinched fingers. Something was amiss. The city of spires ahead grew foggy and the fires that illuminated flickered. Wait, no, I was blinking, the slow blink of somebody on the verge of sleep. Someone's cries met my ears. I turned my head to the right to see that Terry was sliding his feet along the smooth stone floor. Why did Rogers have to die? It should have been me. He said the words so much like facts, while his ankles shifted forward in stumbling steps. The pickaxe that he carried grinded along the floor of the cavern as he dragged it with a limp wrist by the handle. A chorus of other tools soon followed as we all began to carry our tools in this way. Terry's eyes welled with tears. I should have died. He was losing his mind, it was all too much. No amount of what I said would be able to snap him out of it. He was giving up. He choked. I just want to die. It was the wail of a dying critter. Hey, I tried. It's gonna be alright, Terry. It's gonna be okay. Just push on. Don't give up. We're gonna make it out of here. No. For the briefest of moments, his eyes grew lucid as they met mine. No, we're not, Clay. That's okay, though. I'm just gonna lie down for a little while. I heard the handle of his pickaxe clang against the floor. He was no longer dragging it. I'm just gonna lie down and catch up with you later, alright? Don't do that. I tried shaking my head quickly to jumpstart myself out of the strange affliction. Margaret called out from somewhere behind. Don't go to sleep. She sounded like she was having a hard time speaking. It's trying to make us go to sleep. I'm... Terry fell to his knees. I'm just gonna close my eyes, it'll all be over soon enough. He fell onto the solid ground with a dull thud. Another body ahead of me fell. It was the lady who ran the salon down the road, but I could never remember her name. And then someone else off to the left. It wasn't long until we were dropping like flies. Every thud of a body on the hard ground was another stake in the heart. It made me wonder how long that I would last. Margaret called out from somewhere behind again. Clay, are you still awake up there? Yeah, I'm still here. I don't know how much longer I'm going to make it, Clay. Can you do me a favor? I have a granddaughter, and if you make it out of here, will you tell her that I love her? There were a series of snuffles. Will you tell her that I love her and that I'm sorry I couldn't see her grow into a woman? 
Can you do that for me? No. I was surprised how much command I still had over my own voice. Even though I could no longer turn my head to look behind and could only see the rotating watchers in the city beyond, I didn't want to lose Margaret. I can't do that because you're going to make it out of here the same as me. You hear me. A few more bodies struck the ground and the sound of my own heartbeat in my ears was the only other thing for miles. I waited and waited and waited for her response. Every step forward that I took was met with nothing but the sounds of my neighbors dropping. Was she already asleep? Had she succumbed to the wicked magic of the cavern? Was I the last one standing? Would this become my eternity? Walking towards a dark city suspended in infinite time. Okay, Clay, said Margaret. At hearing her voice, I felt a new strength in my legs and even as my muscles met resistance like I was pushing through water, I began stomping defiantly towards the watchers and the sounds of the others' footfalls came too. And then the sinking feeling that I had in the pit of my stomach began to disappear and I was sprinting. I had broken the threshold of the spell it seemed. As my muscles felt normal once more, I stopped and turned around. Laid out before me was mostly bodies. The only ones left was me and Margaret and Linus. He pushed on, slapping his face while he blinked repeatedly and rubbed her cheeks. I've never felt anything like that before, said Linus. I can't believe that I made it. There was nearly a cheeriness in his voice till he met me and looked out onto the bodies. The many dead forms of the group fallen behind. My God, said Margaret. Red tendrils spilled from the dark recesses of the ceiling, reaching for the extremities of the dead or sleeping, and suspended them in midair like puppets for a moment before carefully, almost delicately pulling them up and from our eyes into the shadows. As the bodies disappeared at the ceiling, a sound followed, the sound of grinding bones of stripping wet of those creatures devouring them. There was nothing left in that open stone field but the torches and tools that they had left behind. I bit my lips shut to keep from screaming. It wasn't much further till we would pass the watcher's patrol and there were only three of us left. We were all as good as dead. This is madness, said Linus, shaking his head. I can't believe it. He was right, I couldn't believe it either. I couldn't believe any of it. Margaret was busy examining the Prussian blue walls of the firelit city as one of the watchers stomped their spindly legs over us, giving me a perfect view of the undercarriage of its bulbous top. Beneath what must have been a cabin with some fashion of mechanisms were twisting tubes that pulsated as though they were attempting to emulate the bladders of a living thing. The watcher's spotlight illuminated the faraway darkness in a perfect circle, as it lifted its foot once more to proceed in its never-ending patrol. At the base of those thin legs were wide bird-like appendages, precariously balancing its top-heavy body. The screech of unseen gears broke the silence. It passed over like we were nothing more than inconsequential bugs. Jesus, I said, glancing over to see that Margaret too had removed herself from the wall. She turned her face up to the thing, and we looked to each other with our mouths hanging open. What are these things? Margaret shook her head. Linus interjected. Big idiots, he spat. 
There was a new air about him, unreserved. More than anything else, it made me extremely uncomfortable to meet his eyes. Something was amiss there inside of Linus. It was more than a vigor, the thing that humans find in extenuating situations. It was like he had lost something along the way. A piece of him was gone, and it was only then that I could see it. Why are you looking at me like that? He grinned at me as though we had not just witnessed the death of half the forsaken neighborhood. No reason. I wiped my nose. Cold. Just tired. Margaret lifted her axe over her head as she stretched. Well, the wall is too high to climb. It looks like we'll have to go around until we find an opening. Though, there was a pause that hung in the wet air. I'm not so sure that we should. I looked to the general direction I thought that perhaps we had entered the cavern and then at the vibrant blue color of the city walls. I don't think we would make it back if we tried. I couldn't vouch for the other two, but I was uncertain that I would be able to walk back through whatever aura had protected the place. Not for the first or the last time. I silently admonished myself for encouraging Harold. This was a nightmare of my own design. I had brought it on myself after all. I had brought it on all of us. Linus, with those wild, mad eyes, grinned. Clay's right. The only way is through. That's what we've got to do. It's the only thing that makes sense. In fact, I don't think anything else has ever made more sense in this whole crazy world to me. Margaret looked to me, shooting me a glare that told me I probably shouldn't be saying things like that around Linus. But then her shoulders relaxed and she sighed, puffing up a wild gray strand of hair as she did so before shaking her head. I can't believe I'm saying this, but you're probably right. This is the dumbest thing that I've ever done. Nonsense, said Linus. Look at this place. He put his arms up to accentuate his point. It's beautiful. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. How many people do you think have ever seen anything like this before? Not too many, said Margaret. A smirk took over Linus's lower face. I'm telling you, he was grinning like a maniac. There was something going on there, but for the life of me, I could not figure out what it was. Something was wrong with him. I've read things about the uncanny valley, and I feel as though that's the best way that I can describe it. He was no longer the friendly neighborhood barbecue connoisseur. It was like a new thing had jumped into him, and whether it was the dark magic of the place or his own mind that had done it, I don't know till this day. We took off to the right, following along with the curvature of the city's outer wall, Linus brushing the ends of his fingers intimately over its surface as we went while me and Margaret studied him. The huge open cavern shouldn't have felt so claustrophobic, but it did. The darkness lingering over our heads where the foul creature's head, clinging to the ceiling, forced my chest to tighten. It felt harder to breathe, or perhaps it was just my clogged nose. I skirted away from the line that we had created as we walked to blow my nostrils open with my finger. Under any other circumstances, I may have been embarrassed, but something told me that we were far beyond that. So many had already died. I glanced to my two traveling companions and hoped that I wouldn't have to see any more suffering, but I could sense that that was unlikely. I rejoined them and nobody mentioned a thing. 
they instead opted to stare ahead without saying a word. The three of us had gone perhaps 20 minutes in silence before Margaret began to fall behind, taking slower steps and keeping a distance from us by about 15 yards. What's keeping you back there? asked Linus. Margaret waved us off. Oh, just not as young and spry as I used to be is all. Nothing to worry about. I think I just need to catch my breath. I went to her and touched her on the shoulder. Hey, it's alright. We can take a break if you need to. She latched onto my hand and pulled me close, whispering in my ear. Keep an eye on him. I don't trust him. Before I could even respond, she shoved me away. Linus took his hand off the wall and turned completely around. What are you two talking about back there? Margaret offered a smile. Oh, nothing. Clay was only asking me if I needed a break. I'm fine. He raised an eyebrow at the pair of us. Okay. And then he placed his hand on the wall again, possession taking over his steps. It wasn't long until Margaret fell in line with us once again. I couldn't get what she had said to me out of my mind. Until that point, I had been worried that I was the only one noticing Linus's strange behavior. This should have served to quell the anxieties that I had of him, but it only made it so that they flourished. I kept them in my eyeline. A patrolling watcher stepped over us and we stopped to let it pass. I could see them a million times in my dreams and they would never cease being alien to me. In fact, I have and they remain that way. The watcher's strange bulb briefly lit the high ceiling as it shifted up and I could see a mess of wicked things. Tightly bound skin and faces sewn in frozen torment served as an appropriate juxtaposition to the Sistine Chapel. Before I could check to see if the faces matched any of the ones that we had left behind, the watcher groaned in its mechanical way and laughed. Linus was smiling. Beautiful. A shiver went up my spine. I think I see the entrance up ahead, said Margaret. Squinting, I could see that she was right. Just around a bend, the wall opened up. How long had we been walking for her? The repetitive nature of our footfalls had long since taken me off to another place like hypnosis. If not for her signaling it, I might have walked right by it. The archway was magnificently tall, constructed from an assortment of cyclopean stones. I was left to wonder exactly what sort of creature could have carved them. I couldn't have imagined the watchers doing so, urging the massive stone blocks across the ground with their thin legs. No, it seemed to me that there was only one explanation. They were of an ancient imagination, withdrawn from the recesses of a mind far gone. We passed through the archway only to be met by the ruins of a lost civilization. I was immediately struck by the dizzying way the walkways spun through the spired structures. The streets, if one could call them that, were worn thin as though they had once been traversed by living beings. My mind went to these Sumerian cities created so long ago and I wondered if perhaps this was something similar. I knew this not to be the case. No human would have found comfort in that place. No sane human anyhow. The inner side of the wall surrounding the city was onyx black so dark that I felt if I were to reach out and touch it that I might fall directly into it. Linus whistled up at the tall buildings that seemed to have no entranceways of their own. It was as though they were nothing more than hollowed-out slabs. 
who would construct buildings that could never be used? You guys ever seen anything like this? He asked. No, said Margaret. As we passed by the massive, thorny building striking up at the ceiling of the cavern, we were casting shadows. Margaret and I both removed flashlights but it hardly cut through the blackness ahead. It was a constant fear that something would slither from the darkness and snatch us away to some torturous fate. Thinking of the faces that I had seen in the ceiling, I felt my arms spring alive with a goose flesh. Linus caught my uneasiness and he reached out to pat me on the shoulder. I flinched. Whoa, he said. Calm down there, buddy. There's no reason to be so jumpy. I'm not, I shrugged, while turning my attention back to these shadows in front of us. I'm fine. We moved by the first few structures, glancing down the snaking thin alleyways but deciding in silence to continue our way down the street that we were on. Each time that we met one of these openings on either side, where the buildings broke open to those dark corners of the city, I could feel unreal eyes on me. I felt so totally vulnerable in those moments, like my lungs might rupture and exhaust all the oxygen from my body. But we pushed on and these spires opened up to some kind of abandoned market square, where flame lights flickered the shadows away. Among the torchlights were booths where people had once sold wares, and I was once again confronted by the fact that some intelligent life had in fact dwelled there some time in the distant past. In the center of the square was a massive black tower that rose well above all else. Everything was silent but our own steps for a blinking moment. A single fish fell from the sky and landed near the black spire. Linus went to it and Margaret and I both followed him. He hunkered down over it and prodded it with the end of his index finger, and then looked over his shoulder. Again? He asked apparently to no one. Linus stood and looked to the black spance above. We've seen this already. He shouted and his voice echoed back at him. Did you hear me? You've already done this. Whether or not Linus summoned what was to follow, I'm unsure, but when I looked back on the words that I've written so far, I want nothing more than to reach through the words and throttle him. There is no change in the past. A great groaning escaped from somewhere in the shadows overhead and I have expected the great red tentacle bees from above to come down and make us their playthings. But they did not show. Instead, a shattering glass rained from above. I was left frozen as these shards seemed to materialize from seemingly nothing. I put my arms over my head and hurried to the black spire, hoping to find some cover from the falling glass but the tower did little. A few darting shards caught my legs but I felt nothing through the rush of adrenaline. Linus stood in the center of the market face up screaming. His voice could barely be heard over the shattering glass. As he twisted around, gripping his face, I could see that a thorn of glass had driven its way into his left eye. Blood rushed down the front of his shirt. Margaret clung to me and I to her. No, come on! She was yelling directly into my ear, eyes clenched shut and fingers digging into my arm. I began feeling around the wall of the flat-sided tower as we inched our way around it. My fingers met an opening and I pulled Margaret in with me. We fell in and she scrambled in the dark to withdraw our flashlights, 
while I peered out from the crevice in the tower to scream towards Linus. I saw him dancing in the square with his hands at his face. Over here, come over here. As the words left my mouth, Linus twisted to face me, and I caught another good look at the mess. He latched a hand onto the shard jutting from his eye, and his fingers slid down the sharpened edge of the glass, cutting his hand and causing it to slip as he attempted to pry it from his face. He latched on with both hands and finally launched the thing from his eye socket. I did it, he said, torrents of red rushing from his head. The glass rain did not let up and he seemed to not even notice as it diced his exposed arms to flayed ribbons that hung off of him in cords, exposing the tissue beneath. Linus! But I was too late. A ship's mast fell from the ceiling, landing directly on top of him. It crushed him and I recoiled back into the dark recesses of the crevice that we had found. My stomach lurched, thinking of the way that he had become no more than a stain. The sound of clinking glass continued and I dared to peek out once more, ignoring the spots where Linus's raspberry-squashed remains were. There, crashing over the towering structures and sending up plumes of debris and hunks of stone, was the bow of a ship whirling through the air. Margaret looked at me, dark circles forming around her eyes that I'm sure I reciprocated. A handful of short red streaks that ran the length of her face where the glass had caught her. A stinging soreness in my own cheeks confirmed that I must have looked much the same. The stress that we had been under was beginning to take its toll. It's just you and me now, I informed her. The frankness with which I delivered the news scared me. I know, she sighed. There are stairs over here. I grabbed her by her shoulders. We're both going to make it out of here, aren't we? When had I started shaking her? She ripped herself out of my hands. Clay, get off me. I caught her stern expression, but it was quickly replaced by a look of concern. You're not going to start acting crazy too, are you? My shoulders slumped. No, I shook my head. I just don't want anybody else to die. Margaret grabbed my face. Her cold, bony hands grounded me. I'm not going to die. You're not going to die, alright? I was losing my mind. She was right. I couldn't be thinking like that. It would do neither of us any good. She shone her light into the shadows to reveal a plain carved staircase that spiraled up through the center of the spire. I choked out my words. I don't want to keep going. She shifted to shine the light on me. I felt extraordinarily small when she did that. I don't think we have any choice in the matter. The shattering of the glass just beyond the open doorway in the splintering hull of the wooden ship flying through the air drove away my final protests. We were going on and we had no other choice. But to what end? What did we hope to find? There would be no way out. The stairs seemed to go on forever and it felt as though that there was a physical presence pulling me and weighing me down. Margaret's heels kicked high as she ascended the steps ahead of me with the axe out in front of her chest. Our flashlights illuminated the small space that we traveled through. The higher that we went in the spire, the closer the walls around us grew as though the building tapered nearer to the top. My chest grew tighter with my cold working against me. 
I believe in that climb of that staircase, I became delirious. I tried with my spare hand to feel my forehead, hoping that I had not come down with a blistering fever, but somehow that felt ridiculous. Who cared if that was the case? I couldn't imagine that it would matter. What would happen if I were to just take a seat on those steps and refuse to continue? With everything in me, I believe that I could have taken a seat and died. Wasting away in a dark tower would have been a fate less abominable than the unimaginable horrors beyond, surely. I'm afraid that if I had not had Margaret ahead of me, pushing on with her wiry, persistent limbs, that may have been what had happened. Whatever the opposite of concentration, that's what I found in those lingering dark moments on the stairwell. It became a steady zombie walk of doom where living ceased being a thing and there was only the movement. The repetition of it lulled me to a place in my mind where things are better. On our way up, we went by slitted openings in these stone-like ancient fortress windows that allowed us to look upon the city of twisted buildings. When the glass had stopped coming down, I could no longer hear the sound of the ship crashing over rooftops. Somehow the silence was worse. Things would never be the same. I would forever remember that place and those quiet nights that I would find my eyes going out of focus. Daydreaming would become a thing of the long forgotten past because I would always be returned to there when imagination came. Are you alright? Asked Margaret without looking over her shoulder or slowing her pace. I think so. Just making sure I'm not alone. Yeah, I know what you mean. She angled her pace around the middle of the pillar of the stairwell, ever tightening its bend. What if there's no end? What do you mean? I mean, what if it goes on forever? There's always an end. My mind was programmed from a lifetime of constructed narratives that forced a sense of purpose on me and my actions. There is always an end. How do you know? What if we just keep going on forever? Her voice was shaking. I don't think that's going to happen, I hoped aloud. That's not how it works. We're going to get out of this, remember, just like we had talked about, you and me will. I really hope you're right. I know I am. I said this in the most reassuring way that I could without actually believing it, even if I wanted to. She stopped. I think I see it, the opening, it's just up ahead. There was hope in her voice that twisted my intros. The truth was evident. Beyond her silhouetted shoulder, I could spy dancing warm light. Our pace quickened as we broke the surface at the pinnacle of the spire. I slammed into her without meaning to. We were holding hands, not as lovers, but as humans because we were scared. At the clean, flat spire top that stretched to a diameter of 20 yards, we stood together aghast at the creature there. The unmoving, half-human-seeming thing gurgled as its chest rose and fell. It sat in a chair of the same onyx that I had seen on the inner wall of the city like it was made of a bitter, sick soul. We wagered a few steps towards the thing lined in rows of standing torches. Its eyes were wide open white, Forgotten by sunlight so the pupils and irises had taken on a milky blue quality. The thing's arms were strapped into the chair. Black snaking tubes gored into the forearms, frozen hard so that it could not move. 
The opposite end of the tube snaked into the ceiling. It stared directly up to the dark shadows of the clouds above. Not even its mouth was free of its own cord that no doubt plumbed at the depths of its stomach. As we grew nearer, I could see dried tear stains that traced the creases of its crow's feet, and its beard was no longer full but kinked and thinned from duress. Harold? I choked out. The thing in the seat did not respond to my voice. On approach, I could see the reason for this. Its ears had been clogged and locked in place by those same black tubes. My God, hushed Margaret. We went to Harold then, not knowing what to do. As I touched his cool, naked skin, he seemed to respond in a mumble groan around the thin tube trapped in his throat. Why was I crying? I reached one of the tubes while Margaret watched me with steady eyes. Neither of us knew what to do, but that was not going to stop me from doing what came next. It was a panic that had jumped into my fingers as I clawed at one of the tubes in his left arm. I yanked it and he let out an awful scream as sludge shot from the place that I had freed the tube, spraying me in the face. I let it fall to the side, totally stunned. What was I going to do? Would he die if I pulled him from the chair? Was he too far gone? And then a whirring began that echoed. The sound of suction filled my ears and I watched down in horror as the tubes attached to Harold began sucking something out of him. His eyes closed and he cried, whimpering tears. I could not see through the vacant black tubes into this day. I do not know what it was that it drew from him. But when the silence came, it was maddening. Margaret looked at me and she held her hands to her forehead, perpetually swiping her hair back in a frantic manner. What's happening, Jesus Christ, what's happening? But then it began to rain again. No, not rain. It hailed and thousands of pinking little balls fell from that black sky and rained down on our heads. I closed my eyes and went to Margaret and we tried our best to shield one another from what came, screaming like we had screamed in that place so many times already. The twinkling glow caught my eyes as it gathered around our feet and I could see that the hail was not ice or rocks, but they were made of gold. I snapped from my terror and brought one of them up and held it to my face. Through squinted eyes, Margaret shouted at me, What are you doing? I held up the circle. They're wedding bands. She opened her eyes and looked through the hole in the center of the ring that I was holding. Why? I glanced toward Harold. And this is his place, I think. What? There are things darker in the human mind than there are out there in space. No dark gods compared to the inner workings of a human mind. The potentiality of her own terribleness cannot be overstated. Those previous sentences are a post-rationalization in the moment. I couldn't put the words in place like that. I simply shook my head and I dropped the ring. I don't know. The rings came down and I pattered to the opening at the top of the spire towards the way that we had already come. Margaret had been right. There was no end. But I was going to try even if it killed me. Her fingers dug into my arm and whipped me around. We can't leave him. She glanced over at the thing in the chair, still sputtering and gasping for air around the tube fixed to his lips. Not like that. 
There is a pause before she looked back to me. I wouldn't want to be left like that, would you? I looked at the axe in her hand. How was it that she had kept it so long, through everything? Not like that. We can't do it like that. And we were screaming to one another over the clinking of the metal rain. What choice is there? Her fingers tightened around the handle of the axe. I... We could do it quick. I looked to the pitiful Harold and nodded. She moved quickly. It was a task that nobody wanted a part in, and the faster that it was over, the better. Margaret launched the axe into his chest with a quick heave. His body lurched and spasmed before going still. She ripped the axe away and blood sprayed at his chest opened wide. The wedding ring stopped falling with the last few ringing out somewhere far away. All was quiet with Margaret covered in Harold's blood like it was war paint. The cavern air changed. There was nothing. We were standing in a vacuum that might crush us at any moment. And then the world began to crumble. A cave-in was my initial thought. But this was ridiculous, of course. Cave-ins didn't happen in places that didn't exist. Such tragedies were for the real world. We had parted there so long ago. The world was shaking and the spire trembled, threatening to give away at any moment. The rumbling was all that I could hear. Margaret screeched out something, but I couldn't understand. She hung on to the edge of one of the tubes attached to Harold's body. She was waving at me. I stumbled over and fell onto my knees, trying to crawl to her. Her mouth moved, but as I tried to cipher in what she was saying, a great boulder fell from the sky and sheared away the opening of the stairwell behind me. I twisted around on my back to watch it fall away as spider crack lines shot in my direction. I'm certain that I was screaming as I moved. I felt a pair of ice-cold hands on my neck and craned around to see Margaret. She screamed over the roar of the falling debris. I can see light! She pointed in the most unexpected of directions. She pointed at Harold's chest. She shifted to the front of him that had been pried open by the axe. I watched dumbfound as she pushed her fingers into his chest and opened the more. Indeed, natural light spilled from there. I was immediately reminded of the mumbles of my dead neighbors. The only way was through, so they had said. Margaret placed her knee on his thigh and ripped his chest open. I crawled over on shaking arms and pulled myself up to gander in. It was a dream that I could see trees and perhaps even a touch of real air. I'm not proud of this, but I pushed my fist into him and began worming my way in. Freedom was so close that I could nearly taste it. Swimming the visceral ooze in the place between here and there is a feeling that I will never wash clean. And digging my claws in, I propelled myself forward like a deranged newborn, pulling itself free from its tense mother. There was no longer a Harold or Margaret or even me. There was only the ravenous growing urge to escape, and I kicked my way through intestines until I tugged away at clumps of dirt and took in labored breaths of fresh air. The sun splintered overhead as I sat choking in the open hole of Harold's front yard. I hocked up a lump of wet mud and scooted onto my knees to peer into the place that I had come from. There was no opening leading back there anymore. In its place, there was only a grouping of loose dirt. I watched and waited and was all alone. 
I wept and swiped tears away with dry, cracked hands. Come on, I said at the pile. Come on. The words spit from my mouth. The dirt remained still with no trace of life. Please. I begged whatever it was that had created such a cruel world. I screamed like a madman. It started out small. The pebbles of minuscule, bald clay fell away and rolled like children down a grassy hill. A finger with a splintered, caked nail sprang forth, and then came the whole hand and the forearm. I wrapped my hands around the thin wrist and tugged with everything that I had, and then Margaret's head sprang forth, hair clinging to her head. She gasped, open-mouthed and eyes closed, and once she was free, she wiped at her face. After a brief coughing fit where she put her head between her knees as I patted her on the back, she began crying. We made it, I said, the elation in my voice reaching a point of absurdity. There's no reason for that anymore. We made it. She looked at me. I know. Margaret patted the dust off her shirt. There was a time in there that I saw your feet just above my head. I saw you kicking and you were going to make it out. But then I felt something grab me from behind and I was stuck. And then your feet disappeared and I couldn't move anymore. I almost died. I could feel whatever it was squeezing the life out of me. There was a thought that I had though. I looked at her puzzled. At least you were going to make it out. That's what I thought. That would be something at least. Margaret, I don't know what I would have done if you hadn't. We sat there curled together on that spot in the bottom of a pit for too long. There was an investigation into the matter by the police. You can't have half a neighborhood disappear without a raising a few eyebrows. Neither me nor Margaret told the whole story, but the police received what we knew they'd believe. There was a mania caught among the crowd of people gathered in front of Harold's front yard and we couldn't stop digging. We told them that much and that much was enough. The official record went that we were the victims of hysteria. We told them of a cave-in and that most of the people that were caught in it. They excavated the lot that Harold's house stood on and never found a thing. I never figured they would. We each got our share of fines and community service. In the courtroom, I recall the judge sneering at me from her high chair as I pled my case. There was jail time for me, but Margaret's lawyer was better. She visited me sometimes, and it was time well spent in comparison to what I had seen. When I got out, Margaret introduced me to her granddaughter, as me and the old lady who once jogged around the neighborhood grew closer. I came to realize that her granddaughter was all that she had left, and it finally made sense to me that her last request would have something to do with her. We don't talk about that place often, but when we do, it always ends in long nights where we chat over four or five bottles of wine or whatever else is nearby. She's a fair amount older than I am, and I know that. I'll be the last unless by some miracle the old bird outlives us all. And given what she's capable of, I would believe it's possible. I joke like that to make it seem far and away. Do not let this serve as some fable of morals or fault. It was never about blame anyhow. This was about one man's inability to let go of the past. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. 
And as always, stay creepy. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.